Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and we're going to kick off tonight with an apology. Sorry, but we're going to observe the anniversary of one of the most important, ubiquitous, and least worthy of all American inventions, the commercial. The first one was broadcast on this date in 1922, and we're actually going to hear it, along with vintage ads in Our Miss Brooks, Grand Central Station, and The Man Called X. We have to play some of the comedians who savaged radio commercials, including Fred Allen and Bob and Ray, and, without their tobacco advertisements, Dragnet and Gunsmoke. As for us, we're not selling you anything, except the chance to relax forget about the troubles of last week, set aside worrying about the week to come, and instead, to set your imagination free, here on your Sunday night oasis, The Big Broadcast. Until Edmund O'Brien had really established himself in the role of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, his adventures were broadcast on what's called a sustaining basis. That is, the network, in this case CBS, ate the costs until a sponsor could be recruited. That finally happened in the summer of 1950 when a chewing gum company decided to pick up the tab. But summer was still a ways off when this episode appeared. In it, the characters use alienist, an old term for a psychiatrist, and there's a reference to I.W. Harper Bourbon. The date was February 17, 1950, and the series was yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Time now for Edmund O'Brien as... Johnny Dollar. Johnny, how soon can you get out to Highbridge, North Dakota? North Dakota, huh? In the winter, you guys sent me to North Dakota and the summit of Miami, Florida. All right, what's your problem? We got two old duffers insured for a total of $80,000. What's the matter? Somebody threatening to kill them? Nope. They're threatening to kill themselves. Edmund O'Brien in another of the adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office National Fidelity Life Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during investigation of your policyholders, Mr. and Mrs. Arbuthnell Trump, or how the gravedigger's spades came near being Trump's. Expense account item one, $113.52 railroad fare, Hartford, Connecticut, to Highbridge, North Dakota. As I walked towards the station in Highbridge, the wind whipped white shawls of snow out of the night and around me like a Spanish dancer, and the raw cold had my teeth acting like castanets. Inside the shack, I found a pot-bellied stove surrounded by a pot-bellied station master. Hello. 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 You are early customer? Well, my 
I'm the only one got off the train. Can I can I find a taxi around here? Yep. As soon as my son gets the mail and freight tucked away, he'll take you. Only it won't be any taxi cab. You drive it wherever you're going in the pong. Uh, by the way, where are you going? To the Trump residence. You know it? Yep. I know it. Uh, you one of the family? No. Just business. Oh. Well... Well, what? Uh, what is your business is none of mine. But, uh, you ever been out there before? No, I haven't. Why, something wrong? If it ain't, then everybody in this town has been getting a lot of unnecessary exercise. Uh, jumping to conclusions. Well, here comes the boy. He'll drive you over. Ah, uh, Hickey! Yeah? Hickey, you got a customer for the pung. Wants to go out to Trump place. The Trump place? Hmm. Well, all right. But, mister, I'll only take you as far as the gate. You say this is your first visit, huh? That right, Mr. Dollar? Yep, that's right. Hey, how much more we got to go? Oh, about another mile. You cold? Cold? Ooh, I'm freezing. Well, slap your arms around. Keep up circulation. Hey, does it always get this cold around here? Nope. Only in the winter. Oh. Say, Hickey. Yeah? You mind answering a few more questions? No, no, many answers. You're welcome to those. What about this Trump place? Why is everybody around here scared of it? What is it, a haunted house? Nope. As far as I know, everybody out there is alive, all right. Matter of fact, I'd feel better if some of the things out there was dead. What do you mean? Well, past year or so, I've been delivering some packages out there. Boxes are coming express on a train. Some of them come all the way from Africa. Quite a few from India, too. All marked danger. And all marked do not open. Deadly. Whatever comes in those boxes is alive. What about the people, the Trumps themselves? Oh, they look nice enough. Sort of on the old side. Old man Trump looks like a deacon. His wife looks like a deacon's wife. But they never seem to come to town, let alone church. Hey, that's funny. What's so funny? Well, look, they're on the road. Fresh auto tracks. Only one place to go out this way. Same place we're going. To the Trump house. I don't see anything wrong with that. Those folks never have no visitors. Now it looks like they're having a lot. <laughs> hey, maybe they're having guests for dinner. That's right. Maybe they are having guests in for dinner. I didn't say in for dinner. I said maybe they're having guests for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's some funny joke, that is. Yeah. Well, here we are, right around the next bend. Good. I'll tell you what, Hickey... When I get ready for you to drive me back, I'll, uh, I'll give you a call on the telephone, huh? That'll be a good trick if you can do it. What do you mean? The Trumps, they don't have no telephone. Expense account item two, a buck and a half pung fare. Hybrid station to the gate of the Trump estate where the driver Hickey dumped me off. I used one of the fresh tire tracks as a footpath up the long driveway through the snow. And steaming the white flakes out of my eyes with my breath, I took inventory of the house sprawled on the crest of the slight rise. It was big, colonial, and in good repair. 
All rooms lighted downstairs. One room lighted upstairs. Near the front, the automobile tracks took off around to the back of the house. I had to make my own footsteps in the drifts from there to the front door. Quickly, quickly, don't let that cold in. Let's shut the door. Now, who are you? What do you want? What are you doing here? I'm Johnny Dollar from the insurance company. As to what I want, well, I want to see Mr. and Mrs. Trump. As to what I'm doing here, I'm just the victim of a bad choice of careers early in life. Well, all right. Take a seat over there. I'll go check with Mr. and Mrs. Trump. But don't bother taking your coat off yet. So this is Northern Hospitality. Coming in out of the cold makes any house seem warm. But my overcoat started to steam about ten seconds after I got inside this one. So did I. And looking around, I saw the reason. There were potted orchids growing all over the hallway. And orchids grow only in tropical warmth. Despite the invitation not to, I took off my overcoat and waited. After ten more minutes, I felt like slipping out of my suit. A decision I didn't have time to make. They're just finishing dinner, Mr. Dollar. They suggest you join them for coffee. Follow me. Thanks. Mrs. Trump. Mr. Trump, this is Mr. Dollar. How do you do? How are you, Mrs. Trump? Won't you join us? There, sit right over there. Yes, Mr. Dollar, come and sit down. Have some coffee. Oh, thank you. Fine. Now, that'll be all when you may leave. Well. Fine. Now, sugar and cream, Mr. Dollar? Uh, no, thank you, Mrs. Trump. This will be all right, just the way it is. Well, Mr. Dollar, I assume you brought the necessary papers? Yes, yes, I did. They're, uh, they're in my pocket all ready for your signatures. Good, good. We'll sign them right away. Well, I, I was hoping you wouldn't sign them. At least until I've had a chance to talk to you about it. Talk to us? What is there to talk about? I hope you understand that... Well, it isn't every day that an insurance company gets a letter from a pair of policyholders calmly stating that they are both planning to commit suicide. Oh, no? No. Oh. Well, I suppose it is a bit out of the usual run of things, but there's nothing they can do about it. My goodness, we checked with our lawyer. And he said we were perfectly within our rights. Well, granted, you've had the policy a long, long time, and the suicide clause is no longer in effect. However, well, frankly, the company did send me out here in the hope that while I was arranging the change of beneficiary you requested, I could also talk you into changing your mind. Mr. Dollar, you might just as well save your breath. Our minds are made up. Mrs. Trump is right, Mr. Dollar. As soon as we get those change of beneficiary papers signed, we intend to dispose of ourselves. Well, I... And furthermore, young man, within the past 48 hours, we have had ourselves thoroughly examined by a board of extremely well-thought-of alienists who signed documentary proof that we are both perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing you can do to stop us in that direction. But why? Why do you want to do this now, you... You don't look unhappy. Oh, we're not. We've had an extremely happy life, haven't we, Mr. Trump? Indeed, we have, Mrs. Trump. And that's just it. You see, Mr. Dollar, we both feel that having enjoyed such a beautiful life, we owe the world something. And finally, we have evolved a method of paying our debt. 
in doing what we intend to do, we shall leave to the world the beginnings of a new humanity. What's the matter with the old one? Nothing. But it is doomed to extinction. Mr. Dollar, just think for yourself. Atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, biological warfare... And don't forget the flying saucers, Mr. Trump. Don't forget, indeed. Unknown objects hurtling through space, interplanetary traffic. Dear, dear. A prelude to invasion and destruction. Now, now, wait a minute. How do you know? Who told you? Mr. Dollar, Mr. Trump knows these things. He was a professor for many years, and he reads, reads, reads all the time. He knows, he knows all right. Would you mind pouring me some some of that coffee, Mrs. Trump? Not at all. There. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Trump, granted we're all doomed for extinction, how is knocking yourself off going to help? If you just stick it out, you'll not only enjoy a bit more time alive, but... You'll also be around to see the fireworks. You will notice, Mr. Dollar, that we are changing the beneficiary and our policies from our niece, Miss Hope Selden, to the young man who let you in here tonight, Mr. Irwin Harper. Yes, I noticed that. And I also noticed that this young man isn't even related to you. Now, what's that all about? Lord Hope is a frivolous girl. She laughed at us when we tried to tell her what's happening. Irwin is a serious-minded young man who will use the money brought to this household by our passing to make the down payment on a new human race. Mrs. Trump, do you happen to have any brandy around? Uh, Later, Mr. Dollar, later. You want to know why and how? Well, come along. We'll show you. A nightmare is bad enough when you're asleep, but I was awake, and that's when they're really frightening. They took me down through the back of the house to a winding, half-lighted stairway into the belly of the black hall. The oppressive heat grew even more oppressive. More stairs, then tunnels. All the ceilings cement and lined with lead. All the walls covered with pens and cages, and all of them filled with... Snakes, Mr. Dollar. Reptiles, hundreds of them, every species, every variety known to modern man. Look at them. Look at them and look at them well, for here is the new beginning. When life as we know it is blasted off the face of this earth, either by man himself or by his planetary cousins, when that happens, then these shall be the inheritors of this global sphere. As they were in the beginning, according to the Meston theory, as set down in 1903. Yes, Mr. Dollar, Mr. Trump knows these things, don't you see? No, I've got to admit, I don't quite see. You will. There, look. Every pen, every cage is equipped with an automatic feeding device. Stored above the cages is enough scientifically developed food to keep these reptiles alive for a hundred years, if need be. Until the Holocaust, they will be cared for by young Harper. I could use an old Harper myself. When the Holocaust comes, Irwin Harper shall survive as long as possible. Then the machines will take over. The reptiles will be fed. And when the recording devices up on top say that the radioactivity and magnetic forces have been dissipated, the doors of the cages leading to the earth above shall be automatically projected outdoors and the cycle shall be complete. Then the reptiles will be set free on the face of the earth to once again evolve themselves into the new humanity. 
I see. Uh, look, Mr. Trump, I'm out here to ask you a very simple question. What's all this got to do with your committing suicide? That is easily answered, Mr. Dollar. We need money. We need a lot of money to buy the rest of the equipment. We are willing to give up the little that is left of our lives to provide it. Irwin will remain behind to put our money to good use. Mr. and Mrs. Trump, I don't question your motives, but you can't blame me for taking a second look at your methods. This man springing from reptile theory is flimsy enough, but that's your opinion and you're entitled to it. But what you're not entitled to, and I'm quoting the Bible and the law, is the act of taking your own lives. We've talked that over among us, and we are willing to take our chances. All right. But at least you'll agree this is a whole lot to take in one sitting, isn't it? Now let me bring these papers back in the morning. We can talk it over once more, and then you're free to go ahead and sign. Well, time is short, but I don't think a few hours will matter. Do you agree, Mrs. Trump? Yes, I agree. Good. Now, uh, if you'll be kind enough to either let me have a car or have somebody drive me into town. I... Car? We have no car. We haven't had one for months. And we borrowed them from the property. Hasn't been one past the gate for almost a year. Oh? Including tonight? Yes, of course, including tonight. You'll just have to stay here. Come now. We'll take you up to your room, Mr. Dollar. What you need is a good night's sleep. I'd have had a better night's sleep on a tightrope. My room had the same sticky, hot air that filled the rest of the house. It may be great for snakes and orchids, but I'll take my steamings at a Turkish bath. I stretched out on the bed, turned off the lamp, and closed my eyes. But for 20 straight minutes, I could still see ghost automobiles and snakes and more snakes. I kept my eyes closed as much as I could because when they were open, I could see on the wall the serpentine shadows of the tree branches outside. At least, I hoped that's what they were. Then, just as I was hoping the hardest that the realest of them all wasn't what it looked like, out of the blackness from across the room, I heard... I reached down under the bed for a shoe. Not much of a weapon, but all I could think of at the moment. Then I snapped on the lamp and saw it. It had plenty of coils, all right, but it was strictly non-venomous. The steam radiator standing there, hissing my performance. But my nerve ends didn't even have a chance to lie down. They were still standing straight up when it happened. <laughs> I was out of bed, across the room, and out into the hall in slightly more time than it takes to tell. The ray of light from my open door fell across a jumbled pile of beautiful young woman. I bent over her and... star, Edmund O'Brien, we return to the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) 
wake up? You've been walking in your sleep? Yes, you should be more careful. Perhaps you need analysis. Learn what the basic trauma is. Perhaps you need analysis. Learn what the basic trauma is. Where is she? What did he say, Mrs. Trump? Sounded like he said, where is she? I'm right here, Mr. Dollar, right here, taking care of you. Oh. Yeah, somebody's been taking care of me, all right. Oh. Well, where is she, huh? She's gone. What have you done with her? Come on, now, where's the girl? Mr. Dollar, you'd better get hold of yourself. There is no girl here. Oh, no? Well, look, earlier tonight you told me there was no automobile around here, but there was. I saw the tracks in the driveway with my own eyes. I walked in one of them. All right. Look out the window, Mrs. Trump. No, I don't see any tracks. Do you see any footprints? No, nothing, just snow. Okay. At least you know I walked up that driveway, right? And my footprints are covered up. So it's been snowing, the wind has been blowing, it's been drifting. Now I suppose you're going to tell me you didn't hear the girl scream. Come, come now, Mr. Dollar. You were having a nightmare. No girl screamed. Well, if you didn't hear anything, what are you doing out here? What brought you? Young man, we have a right to be wherever in our own home we choose to be. But I might as well tell you, I found you when I started with the kitchen to get some crackers and warm milk. I found you lying here. Yeah, everyone's lying around here. Young man, that does it. Once we get those papers signed, I'm afraid we shall have to ask you to leave. That's all right with me. They're here in my room. Come on. The way some people stand in the way of the few others who are making a genuine effort to sustain some kind of life on this Yes, Mr. Trump, you're absolutely right. You'll find a pen there on the table. Your papers are right here in my... Hey. Yes, Mr. Dollar? The papers are gone. Well, how can they be gone if you brought them at all? We warn you, Mr. Dollar, we will not stand for any more of your dilly-dallying. We want those papers and now. We are determined to sign them immediately. Suddenly, that has become my fondest hope. Now, do us all a favor. Go back to bed and give me a chance to do a little walking in your sleep. I'm looking for a girl, and I'll admit this is a very unlikely place to find her. I'll thank you to get out of my bedroom. You realize how suspicious you look just lying there in bed? What do you mean? Well, I mean that about 15 minutes ago, a woman screamed at the top of her lungs not 20 feet from here. Now, what's your story? That you didn't hear it? Or does it happen around here all the time? You're crazy. I didn't hear any woman scream, and I don't think you did. Okay, have it your way. I'm hearing things. But one thing I know, I'm not feeling things. See here? There's a lump on my head. That's for real. That doesn't interest me a bit. If I find out you put it there, it'll interest you. I'll not only put an egg on your skull, I'll make a whole omelet. In case you don't know it, you're looking at a citizen who's burned up. M-A-D. Mad. From there, I started through the rest of the rooms in the house. 
I thought I knew who I was looking for. The only person I could think of who would profit by seeing those papers not signed. The present beneficiary of the Trump policy, their niece, Miss Hope Selden. All I could find in the next six bedrooms was a lot of old-fashioned furniture. I was just looking under the bed in the last when the wind outside took on a new note. I ran back to my own room, flung open the window, and stuck my head out into the blizzard trying to get a look in the direction of the noise. I wasn't taking any chances on that kicker finally sparking the automobile into life before I had a chance to see who was in it. I swung my feet over the sill and dropped the one story into a high drift. time. Around here, people only go for sleigh rides. What do you want? Who are you? You should know. You had your hand in my coat pocket earlier tonight. Of course, unfortunately, I wasn't in the coat, but something else was, and I want it back. If I took anything out of your pocket, I had plenty of reason and plenty of right to do it. The only one I want taking things out of my pocket is the cleaner when he's spilling out the tobacco crumbs. Now, come on, give me those papers. No, just let me talk to you first. I want you to hear my side of things. Look, I'm freezing. If it takes more than five seconds for you to say what you've got to say, no dice. Well, then let's go back in the house. I know you'll believe me. I saw plenty about her to interest me, but nothing to relax me. She looked like a, well, a big-time operator. A gal who would be as dangerous kissing you as killing you. As I closed the door behind us, she walked across the room and made a perfectly natural movement as though to throw open her coat. When she turned, she had a gun in her hand. It was the first time I'd ever seen a shoulder holster on a woman. Now put your hands up, Mr. Dollar, and listen. Uh-huh. If you'll just unwrap your finger from around that trigger, I'll be more likely to keep my mind on what you're saying. Go ahead. I'm listening. You've got to help me. Help you? Yes, help me prevent my aunt and uncle from making fools of themselves. We can't let them leave their money to Irwin Harper. Well, it's their money. They're attempting to do what they, well, what they believe is right. That money is mine, and I'll kill anyone to get it. Irwin Harper won't stick around five minutes after my aunt and uncle have killed themselves. He isn't planning on taking care of their filthy snakes. I was in his room tonight after he went to sleep. In his pocket, I found a ticket for South America. His plans were all made. He caught me in there and chased me out in the hall and slugged me. When I came to, you were lying there unconscious beside me. I ran downstairs, and I fixed their scheme. I threw the switch to release their stinking reptiles. By now, the snakes are all outside, freezing to death. Don't move. You don't want to... You... So now you know, both of you. You know what that means? I'll have to kill you both, and I'll get away with... Why, you miserable hunk of putty, you conniving thing! Shut up! The Trumps want me to have the money, not you. I worked out that whole plan for them, all of it. And I'm the one they want to take care of it. Now drop that gun, Hope. You'd better drop it, Hope. It doesn't make any difference anyway. What do you mean it won't make any difference? Because our friend over there isn't going to pull the trigger. Oh, no? And why not? Because Hope has released all those snakes. One thing she forgot. When snakes get cold, they try to get warm. And one of them just joined the party. He's right behind you, Irwin. I don't believe you. You're bluffing. Can't you hear him? You can't fool me. That's a steam radiator. In this house, they're all noisy. Irwin, if you make any kind of a move or fire that gun, he's going to strike. I'll make you a deal. Let me reach down and get that gun off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll blast its head off. Careful. Don't move, Irwin. No, you don't. I know what you want that gun for. I wouldn't even turn around and look, Irwin. Not only going to move, I'm going to get that gun out of your reach. There was a snake. Look out, look out. He's on the loose. Oh, he got me. The Bushmaster. The, the worst of them all. Well, you've got the gun. Go on. Shoot him, Irwin. Shoot him. All right. After him. But you're not staying behind me to get your... Mr. and Mrs. Arbuthnell Trump were fresh out of beneficiaries, to say nothing of snakes. The only one that had found his way back into the warmth of the house was the one I'd mistaken for a steam radiator. And without a handy method for creating a new humanity, the Trumps found themselves without a purpose. So I gave them one. At my suggestion, and at the moment, Mr. T is hard at work in his home laboratory, attempting to develop a machine with which mankind will fight the flying saucer. Mr. Trump's invention will be known as the Flying Cup and will be secretly dedicated to a waitress I once knew. Expense account, item three, $113.52 railroad fare, Highbridge, North Dakota to Hartford, Connecticut. Expense account total, $763.90. You may say this doesn't add up, but neither does anything else about this case. Signed, yours, uh, truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, stars Edmund O'Brien in the title role and is written by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd with music by Leith Stevens. Edmund O'Brien can currently be seen starring in Harry M. Popkins' United Artists production, D.O.A. Featured in our cast were Peggy Weber, Harley Bear, Hugh Thomas, Dick Ryan, Jess Kirkpatrick, and Mary Ship. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is produced and directed by Jaime Del Valle. Join us again next week when Edmund O'Brien returns in another adventure of... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The Echo of Jesse James, a modern story of how police tracked down a couple of train robbers, will be brought to you on CBS's Gangbusters this Saturday night. The narrator will be the superintendent of Metropolitan Police, Washington, D.C., and another Gangbusters wonderful cast will reenact this true story for you. Join us this Saturday night on most of these same CBS stations for Gangbusters drama, The Echo of Jesse James. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, where yours truly, Johnny Dollar, meets adventure every Friday night. The Columbia Broadcasting System. From just after Valentine's Day in 1950, an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Edmund O'Brien. 
Our thanks to collector Ted Davenport of Radio Memories for getting us a much cleaner copy of that show than the one we had. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. In the earliest days of American radio, commercials were almost always straightforward attempts at persuasion by a single announcer, touting the virtues of this or that product or service. That approach is still with us to an extent, but by the late 1940s, commercials were sophisticated affairs, with slogans and jingles, little playlets, and other techniques meant to sell you on romance and the kind of life you could have if only you'd buy the product. As we listen to this Our Miss Brooks episode from the fall of 1949, it might be fun to contrast the style and content of the ads with the kinds of things we hear and see on the air and on our laptops, phones, and tablets. With references to the singer Rudy Valley and the radio comedy of Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and just in time for the start of school this week, it's a back-to-school episode of the CBS series... Our Miss Brooks. Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. episode of Our Miss Brooks, written and directed by Al Lewis. Many teachers returning from their vacations, well-tanned and rested, are looking forward to resuming their duties tomorrow morning. But Our Miss Brooks, who spent most of her vacation time teaching English at Madison High Summer School, doesn't share their enthusiasm for getting back into harness. No, I've been wearing the thing so long, I'm saddle sore. <laughs> of course, when summer school ended in August... I did make up my mind to get a complete change of scenery. So I took the money I received, added it to my savings from the regular school term, and by careful budgeting, was able to spend three glorious weeks in the furnished room I rent all year round. (laughs) But last Thursday morning at breakfast, my landlady, Mrs. Davis, and I were discussing my plans for a Friday picnic. But why must the picnic be tomorrow, Connie? Why not Saturday or Sunday? Because, Mrs. Davis, tomorrow is the last weekday I'll have off until Thanksgiving. And if our beloved principal could get away with it, he'd change that to a Sunday. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Conklin isn't that bad, Connie. He likes a good time as well as the next fellow. He likes a good time better than the next fellow. But if the next fellow happens to be a teacher, Mr. Conklin will stop having a good time to give the teacher who's having a good time a bad time. (laughs) And a song by Rudy Valley. Oh. Is uh, Mr. Boynton taking you to the picnic, Connie? Yes, Mrs. Davis. I accepted my invitation on the phone last night. (laughs) It'll be good to see Madison's bashful biologist again. He just got back from a three-week vacation, you know. Who will all is going on this picnic, Connie? Mm, Harriet Conklin and Walter Denton all. (laughs) It was really Walter's idea. The poor kid can't spend any time with Harriet without Mr. Conklin constantly barking at him. Mr. Conklin isn't very fond of Walter, is he? Oh, it's not that Mr. Conklin isn't fond of Walter. He hates him. (laughs) But it ought to be a nice outing for all of us. Oh, that's the door, isn't it? No, that's the bell. 
The door makes more of a creaking sound. <laughs> well, I'll answer it. I need the exercise. If you want me, I'll be in the backyard, Connie. I've got to prune the feet, please. <laughs> Why, it's Mr. Boynton. Come in. Good morning, Miss Brooks. I brought this basket over for the picnic tomorrow. Do you think it's big enough for us? I don't know, but it might be fun trying it on. <laughs> oh, you mean for sandwiches? Well, it seems sort of small, but the basket can wait. I want to know all about your vacation. Where you went, what you did. Well, I, I just went up to Eagle Springs, had a beautiful cabin, did a little fishing, played some golf and tennis. I did a little rowing, too, and at night they had a campfire when we broiled or barbecued steaks and... After that, there was usually a movie or some entertainment at the casino. That's all there was to it. You should have asked for your money back. <laughs> did you do any dancing at the casino, Mr. Boynton? Dancing? Yes, I did dance a little. With whom? Oh. <laughs> I, uh, I, I didn't dance with anyone, just, just by myself. You know, I'd get off in a... <laughs> I'd get off in a dark corner of the casino and sort of waltz around in time to the music. That's nice that way. If you get bored, you can always cut in on yourself. <laughs> uh, tell me, how was your trip back to town? Oh, very pleasant, although the train was quite crowded. Guess who came into town on the same train with me? Who? I'll take a guess. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. No. Charlie McCarthy alone. No, Miss Brooks. No, it was Wallace T. Hewitt. It was? Yes, ma'am. Wallace T. Hewitt himself? That's right. Gosh! Who's Wallace T. Hewitt? <laughs> I'm surprised at you, Miss Brooks. I thought every teacher knew the chairman of the State Board of Education. Oh, it was that Wallace T. Hewitt. Did you ask him for a raise, Mr. Boynton? <laughs> I know you're joking, Miss Brooks. I didn't speak to Mr. Hewitt at all. As soon as we landed in the depot, he was surrounded by reporters. Well, he's a power in educational circles in this state. It was all I could do to get a glimpse of him. What does he look like? Oh, he's quite short, almost completely bald, with a little wispy mustache and small beady eyes behind thick glasses. Good-looking boy. <laughs> and although he's very stout, he moves along rather briskly, like, like a penguin. I wonder what he's doing in town. Maybe he's shopping around for a new tuxedo. But let's not talk about the Board of Education, Mr. Boynton. Time enough for that when school opens next Monday. Hmm? You're right, Miss Brooks. You haven't had a real vacation this summer. This picnic tomorrow ought to be... Oh, it's the phone. Excuse me, Mr. Boynton. Hello? Hello, Miss Brooks. This is Mr. Conklin. Oh, how are you, Mr. Conklin? You'll have Conklin. to dispense with the amenities, Miss Brooks. I'm calling to inform you that Madison High School will open tomorrow morning at the usual time. Tomorrow? But school doesn't start till Monday. I said, Miss Brooks, that our school opens tomorrow. But, Mr. Conklin, Monday is September 12th. All schools open on the 12th. I'm beginning to feel as if I were talking into a thermos bottle. <laughs> Miss Brooks, just a short time ago, I received a telephone call from Mr. Wallace T. Hewitt, chairman of the State Board of Education. Although I've never met Mr. Hewitt, he notified me of his intention to visit my office in the morning. Naturally, I expect a 100% turnout from faculty and student body alike to help me welcome this most distinguished visitor. But, Mr. Conklin, we've got a picnic planned for tomorrow. In a few minutes, Walter Denton's going to take me shopping. Walter Denton? Please, Miss Brooks. I've asked you before, and I beseech you again. 
Don't mention that name so soon after breakfast. <laughs> what my daughter sees in that lame brain dunce is more than I can... No, but there's no time for that now. Until tomorrow morning, Miss Brooks, it's au revoir. Au revoir to you, Mr. Conklin. Well, there goes our picnic, Mr. Boynton. Where? Down the drain, I'm afraid. Your precious Mr. Hewitt has decided to honor our fair school with a visit tomorrow morning. So Mr. Conklin's ordered us all back to greet him. Tomorrow? But school doesn't open officially until Monday. Believe me, Mr. Boynton, I delivered that message with all the feeling my parched little throat could muster. But the answer's the same. It's the Bastille at dawn. Coming. Well, it can't be Walter Denton. Why not? Hiya, Miss Brooks. (laughs) I just saw Mr. Boynton on the corner. I know, he just left. Walter, I've got some sterling news for you. Your news will have to wait, Miss Brooks. I've got the bulletin of all time. Oh, you have? Sure. Listen to this. You know how Mr. Conklin hates me. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't call him a fan, Walter. Yeah, I know. But even so, when he hears about anybody having a good time, even me, he sometimes tries to muscle in. So, I thought up a way to keep him from ruining our picnic tomorrow if he decides to horn in at the last minute. Uh, but Walter, about tomorrow... Uh, please, Miss Brooks, let me finish. About an hour ago, I called old Marblehead on the phone... At, I mean, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> and I put a handkerchief over the mouthpiece and disguised my voice. Oh, oh you should have been there, Miss Brooks. It was a riot. <laughs> oh, what did you say, Walter? I said... Get a load of this, Miss Brooks. I said... Hello, Conklin. And he said, Yes, this is Osgood Conklin. Who is this? And then I said, Oops, this will kill you, Miss Brooks. Well, let's not make it such a slow death. <laughs> Who did you say it was? I said, Conklin, this is Wallace T. Hewitt. Wallace T. Oh, no. Yeah. And then I said, I'm inspecting some of the schools in this area, and I'll expect to see you in your office at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. <laughs> and then while he was falling all over himself to be nice to me, I hung up. <laughs> is that a rib or is that a rib? That, Walter, is the greatest rib that's been pulled since Adam was a bachelor. <laughs> Starring Eve Arden will continue in just a moment, but first, here is Vern Smith. Now, dental science reveals a startling discovery in the fight against tooth decay. Proof that always using Colgate Dental Cream right after eating helps stop tooth decay before it starts. Continuous research, hundreds of case histories, makes this the most important news in dental history. Eminent dental authorities supervised hundreds of college men and women for over a year. One group always brushed their teeth with Colgate's right after eating. The other followed their usual dental care. And here are the amazing results. The group using Colgate Dental Cream, as directed, showed a startling reduction in average number of cavities, far less tooth decay. The other group developed new cavities at a much higher rate. No other dentifrice offers proof of these results. And Colgate's contains all the necessary ingredients, including an exclusive patented ingredient for effective daily dental care. No risk of irritation to tissues and gums. 
And no change in flavor, foam, or cleansing action. As always, Colgate's cleans your breath while it cleans your teeth. The Colgate's now at your dealers is the same formula used in the test. Always use Colgate Dental Cream right after eating to help prevent new cavities, help stop tooth decay before it starts. Well, I spent most of Thursday night trying to figure how to keep Walter Denton from being expelled and still go on our picnic Friday instead of waiting around school for a Mr. Hewitt who would never arrive. About four in the morning, an idea was born, and a thoroughbred infant it was, out of desperation by panic. <laughs> a half hour before school was due to convene found me heading for Marty's Malt Shop, a student hangout across the street from Madison. As I entered, I noticed Stretch Snodgrass, known to his chums as Athlete's Foot of the Brain, <laughs> seated at a table by himself. Good morning, Stretch. Am I intruding? Well, no, Miss Brooks. You don't look no different to me than you always do. <laughs> Thank you, I think. Mind if I sit down and have a cup of coffee? Not at all. Here, I'll take this off the seat for you. It's my football. Yes, I know. That's the only thing you've passed all year. <laughs> but, Stretch, there's something you've just got to understand. Yeah, there must be something. <laughs> now I'm not so sure. But it seems that a very dear mutual friend of ours engineered a rather foolish prank yesterday. And if the facts ever leak out, he'll be expelled from Madison. You and I, Stretch, hold his scholastic future in our hands. Now, how good are you at keeping a secret? Oh, I'm very good, Miss Brooks. Like yesterday when my pal Walter Denton imitated Mr. Hewitt's voice on the phone and told old Marblehead that... Oh, Mr. Conklin, he better hightail it over to school today. After Walter done it, he made me promise to keep it a secret. So that's why I won't tell nobody. Not a word of it. Not a word of what, Stretch? Well, Paul Walter told... Oh, no, you don't. You can't trick me into spilling anything. <laughs> you couldn't beat it out of me with a rubber hose. Stout fella. <laughs> but, Stretch, the entire faculty and student body have to be in school this morning only because Walter imitated Mr. Hewitt's voice on the phone and told old Marblehead, uh, Mr. Conklin, <laughs> to hightail it over to school today. Gosh, how did you know that, Miss Brooks? There must have been a leak. <laughs> but I've got an idea that can get us all out of here. Now, will you help me, Stretch? Sure, Miss Brooks. What can I do? Well, you can see to it that Mr. Hewitt arrives nice and early so we can all leave the same way. But I don't know Mr. Hewitt. And Mr. Conklin doesn't either. Now, listen closely, Stretch. You know the little park right across from the school library? Library? Where all the books are kept. <laughs> books? It's on the way to the football field. Oh, that little park. Sure, I know where that is. There's always a bunch of old Delericks sitting around there. <laughs> old what? Delericks, you know, bum sorta. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Stretch, I want you to get one of those men and bring him to me. But be sure you get a fat one with glasses who has a little mustache. Mr. Conklin might have seen a picture of Mr. Hewitt somewhere. Well, that shouldn't be too tough. A lot of them look like that. But, Miss Brooks... Supposing he don't want to come. He's got to come. Tell him he'll be helping a human being in distress. Tell him anything, but bring him directly to me. Well, I don't get him, Miss Brooks. Why should A quiet we... stretch. Harriet Conklin's coming over. Now, whatever you do, don't mention a word of this. Good morning, Miss Brooks. Well, shut Stretch's mouth if it isn't Harriet Conklin. <laughs> How are you, Harriet? Oh, I feel wonderful, Miss Brooks. 
Hiya, Stretch. What do you know? You couldn't beat it out of me with a rubber hose. <laughs> What's wrong with Stretch, Miss Brooks? He ain't talking. Now, Stretch, you'd better go over to the park and do what I told you. I'll explain to Harriet and get her oath of allegiance on our way over to school. All right, Miss Brooks. Remember now, get a small, chubby one with glasses. I'll remember. See you later, Harriet. What's this all about, Miss Brooks? What did you send Stretch after? A penguin, Harriet. With glasses? Why not? A penguin's entitled to see where he's going, isn't he? I don't understand this. Boy, of all the people in the park, why did you have to pick on me? Because you were so nice and round. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I told you, mister, it's a matter of helping out a human being. Besides, you wasn't doing nothing in the park. I wasn't doing nothing? Who teaches you English, boy? Miss Brooks. Well, there she is waiting on the steps. I'll introduce her to you in a minute. Well, what's your name? My name is Hewitt. Wallace T. Hewitt, chairman of the State Board of Education. <laughs> chairman of the... Uh, excuse me a minute. Where are you going? I better go back to the park and get another one. <laughs> Nonsense. You've aroused my curiosity now, and I'm going to see this thing through. Hello, Stretch. Miss Brooks, this is Mr. Hewitt. Oh, it certainly is. Oh, he's perfect, Stretch. Yeah. Perfect. But, Miss Brooks, this really is Mr. Hewitt. I'll say, from the top of his shiny skull to the tips of his waddly little toes. <laughs> Now, see here, young woman, I demand to know what this is all about. First, I'm sitting in the park reading and... The want ads can wait, Chubby. I've got a job for you. <laughs> a job? For me? It'll only take a few minutes, and I'll see that you get a dollar for your trouble. A dollar? <laughs> this kid is really anxious. We could probably have swung it for a quarter. <laughs> now, listen carefully, Hewitt. I'll be calling you by that name from here in, so we might as well get used to it. All you've got to do is convince Mr. Conklin, our principal, that you're Mr. Hewitt, chairman of the State Board of Education. I see. Hey, do you think my card might help to convince him? I've got some in my wallet here. There we are. The cards are right, uh, cards are right in this little compartment. Uh, see where my name is printed in gold letters? Wallace T. Hewitt. Quick stretch, call a cop. This bum has just murdered Mr. Hewitt. <laughs> Now, look here, young woman. This has gone far enough. Fortunately, I'm just proud enough of my position to carry with me a newspaper photo which appeared last month. Here, look at it. Wallace T. Hewitt, chairman of the State Board of Education. Stretch, it's him. Sure, it's him. Of course it's him. And me. <laughs> Why, Mr. Hewitt, we, we knew it was you all the time. You did, huh? But you said I waddled and that I murdered myself. Well, that was all part of the joke, Mr. Hewitt. You see, one of our teachers came back on the same train with you from Eagle Springs. You didn't see him, of course, but he couldn't help observing what a jovial, good-natured, jolly sort of person you are. Well, I do have quite a good sense of humor about some things. <laughs> but another explanation seems in order, Miss Brooks. Why are so many students roaming about the campus? School doesn't start until next Monday. Well, that's because our principal, Mr. Conklin, wanted us to get a head start. Really? Well, that is unusual. I'd like to meet Mr. Conklin while I'm here. Oh, no, you wouldn't. He's not in on the rib. Hmm? I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, that is, with such a distinguished visitor, I'd like to tell him you're here first. 
You know, give him a chance to run a comb through his tie and fix the knot in his hair. <laughs> but my dear Miss Brooks... Oh, please, Mr. Hewitt, take a little stroll around the grounds and I'll meet you at Mr. Conklin's office in a few minutes. Well, if it'll make you feel more comfortable to announce me. But uh, how will I find Mr. Conklin's office? You can't miss it. When you come back to the main building, you'll see a door with a gray-haired English teacher in a straitjacket in front of it. Just push me aside and walk right in. <laughs> He told me he'd be right over here giving the athletic field a last-minute check. Have you seen him, Walter? No, Harriet, but he might be in the gym. Gosh, I'm nervous as a kitten. If your dad finds out we're hiring a hobo to impersonate Mr. Hewitt, we'll be boiling oil. Oh, he won't find out. We'll just have to be real cagey about it. I wonder where Daddy could be. I'm right here behind the handball court, my dear. Mr. Conklin! <laughs> so I'm to be duped, am I? Uh, By an impersonator, eh? A hobo, eh? <laughs> but, Miss Brooks, I don't understand. Why am I sitting behind Mr. Conklin's desk? Because, Mr. Boynton, with the real Mr. Hewitt on our hands, we've got to have a fake Mr. Conklin. And outside of Mr. Conklin, you're the best fake I could find. <laughs> He might come back to his office Well, and... we've just got to take that chance. If Mr. Hewitt talks to Mr. Conklin and the truth about that phone call comes out, Walter Denton will be expelled. Oh, gee, I wouldn't want that to happen. Well, then we've got to see this thing through. Mr. Hewitt should be finishing his tour of the school. Come in! Well, Miss Brooks, I'm back. Good. Mr. Conklin here has just been perishing to meet you. Mr. Conklin, may I present Mr. Hewitt? How do you do, sir? So you're Mr. Conklin. Uh, tell me, how long have you been the principal of Madison High School? Uh, not long at all. <laughs> I imagined as much. You're a very young man to be holding this high office, Mr. Conklin. And I might add, a very handsome young man. Isn't he a doll? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's so industrious, Mr. Hewitt. You won't catch many principals jumping the gun like this. Uh, coming to school ahead of time. Hey, that's very true, Miss Brooks. I'll certainly mention this in my report to the board. I'm returning to the state capitol in a couple of hours, you know. Oh, really? Then we wouldn't want you to miss your train, sir. Now that we've met you, maybe we ought to let you get out. Uh, but uh, fast. <laughs> I'll show you the shortcut to the bus line if you'll just follow me out this door. And we'll go... Going somewhere, Miss Brooks? <laughs> Not me. I'm rooted to the spot. <laughs> Good. And this, I presume, is Mr. Hewitt? That's right. Mr. Wallace T. Hewitt? Yes. Chairman of the State Board of Education? That is correct. Get out of this office, you hobo! <laughs> hobo! Pack up your bindle and hit the road! <laughs> this has gone far enough. Mr. Conklin, did you hear what I just heard? Of, of course, course I, I heard it. <laughs> What's the meaning of this? Something wrong, Mr. Hewitt? <laughs> wrong? This, this hobo just called me a hobo. Do I have to show everyone in town my picture in the paper to prove I'm not a vagrant? Here, take a look at this, you oaf. <laughs> Wallace T. Hewitt, chairman of the state. Yeah. It's you. <laughs> yes, it's me. And I'm going to see that the board hears of this outrageous affair. Now, what's your name? My 
Um, name? Yes, your name. My name is uh, Denton, Walter Denton. <laughs> I presume you're a member of the Madison High faculty? Uh, faculty? Uh, no, no, sir. I'm a student here. <laughs> a student? You? G.I. Bill of Rights. <laughs> He's making up some credits so he can get into grade school. Hi, Miss Brooks. The door was open, so I just... Oh, Mr. Conklin. Yes? Yes. <laughs> This is Mr. Hewitt, Mr. Wallace T. Hewitt. It's no use. The jig's up, Miss Brooks. Mr. Conklin knows he's just a hobo. <laughs> Again, hobo. What is your name, young man? Me? Uh, uh, that, that's my pal, Mr. Hewitt. One of my dearest buddies here at school. Uh, uh, Stretch Snodgrass. <laughs> Take hands with Mr. Hewitt, Stretch. Stretch? Somebody mentioned my name? <laughs> Not yet, but we will in a minute. <laughs> Mr. Hewitt, this is the boy who asked you to join us while you were sitting in the park. Meet Philip Boynton. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm quite following the goings-on here today, but I've just got to make that train. Let me tell you one thing, though, Mr. Conklin. Yes? <laughs> will you please stop butting in, Denton? I'm sorry, sorry, Mr. Mr. Hewitt. <laughs> the glee club too long. I just want you to know that in spite of my sense of humor, I consider this incident a grievous insult to a man in my position, and I'm going to take action immediately. But, Mr. Hewitt, what action are you going to take? I'm going to see to it that a certain Walter Denton is expelled from this school. Expelled? Expelled? Expelled. Boy, I'm glad I'm not in their shoes. Young woman, as the instigator of this degrading practical joke, you shall be as severely penalized as the state board permits, and I shall take great pleasure in recommending your immediate suspension without pay. Now, Miss Brooks, what do you say to that? Well, Miss Brooks? Miss Brooks? Who's Miss Brooks? <laughs> what? Well, if you're not Miss Brooks, then who are you? Mr. Hewitt, shake hands with Sam, the janitor. <laughs> Miss Brooks returns in just a moment, but first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight, yes, tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Luster cream, world's finest shampoo. No other shampoo in the world gives K. Dumas magic blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Not a soap, not a liquid... Luster Cream Shampoo leaves hair three ways lovelier. Fragrantly clean, free of loose dandruff, glistening with sheen, soft, manageable. Even in hardest water, Luster Cream lathers instantly. No special rinse needed after a Luster Cream Shampoo. So gentle, Luster Cream is wonderful even for children's hair. Tonight, yes, tonight, try Luster Cream Shampoo. Dream girl. Dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl, you owe your 
crowning glory to a luster cream shampoo. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, what started out as a pretty dangerous practical joke soon proved to be nothing more than a clean-cut, wholesome shambles. <laughs> but by mass pleading and a pint of quickly generated tears, we finally prevailed upon Mr. Hewitt to suspend sentence, and at long last we were off on our picnic. In less than an hour, Mr. Boynton had driven us about 30 miles from town. Well, it took us a little while, but we can still have some fun. Sure we can. It's a beautiful day, and the ride's just swell. Don't you think so, Miss Brooks? I certainly do, Walter. Your car drives beautifully, Mr. Boynton. So much smoother than mine. Oh, thanks, Miss Brooks. But you know something? I can't help wishing we had taken my car instead. Why, Miss Brooks? Because that's where I left the picnic basket. <laughs> Tune into another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Mustard Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written and directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Doctors prove you too may have a lovelier complexion in 14 days. Yes, 36 leading skin specialists proved in tests on 1,285 different women that a new method of cleansing with palm olive soap using nothing but palm olive brought new complexion beauty to two women out of three. Just wash your face three times daily with palm olive soap, each time for 60 seconds massaging palm olive's beauty lather onto your skin. Then rinse. So start your palm olive facials today. See what palm olive soap can do for your complexion in just 14 days. Here is an urgent message from the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. March of Dimes funds for the care of polio victims will be used up by September 30th, 19 days from now. It will take over $14 million to continue this care. So don't abandon America's children. Send your dimes and dollars to polio, care of your local post office now. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting, fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evening over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Our Miss Brooks, complete with commercials from September 11th, 1949. School begins in most of the DMV this week, and we're marking that happy prospect here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog, Mike Kidd, and Kennedy Wright are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. A bit later this hour, we're going to hear the first commercial ever broadcast. It aired 100 years ago on this very date. But we won't hear any commercials on Gunsmoke. Its sponsor was a tobacco company, and cigarette commercials on the air have been illegal in this country since 1971. 
So, enjoy an uninterrupted story called New Hotel. It comes from February 19, 1956, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West... There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. Transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job. And it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. That's Enoch Mills' new hotel. Yeah, it will be when they get it built, Chester. I never heard of a cattle rancher going into hotel business before, Mr. Oh, Jones. Enoch Mills is a man of enterprise. Look yonder at him. <laughs> He's as proud as a new father, ain't he? <laughs> well, it isn't every day a man builds a new hotel in Dodge. Hello, Marshal. Chester. Oh, Mr. Mill. That's yeah, gone up pretty fast, isn't it? Well, we got most a month before it's finished. Uh-huh. How many rooms are you going to have? Fifteen. Could have more, but this is going to be a class hotel. Not some hay tent like Jim Doby's Dodge House. <laughs> I'll bet he's jealous. That Doby's had a monopoly in this town long enough. <laughs> You're right about him being jealous, Chester. He's already done everything he can to keep me from building. Oh, what's he done, Edith? Well, tried to buy up all the good lumber in town, for one thing. Thought he'd leave me with nothing but a lot of warpy old cottonwood. But I got on to him soon enough. I'm building with the best, Marshal. All of it. Ash, Hackberry. Yonder he comes now. Huh? <laughs> He's scouting the enemy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let him scout. He'll be out of business soon enough. <laughs> Looks like a town meeting we're about to have. How are you, Marshal Chester? Hello, Mr. Doby. We're coming along just fine, Doby. Of course, it's only a little bitty hotel. You'll never beat me, Enoch. You're getting too old. Old? Doby, I'll eat the goose that fattens in your grave. Not likely. Anyways, what do you know about the hotel business, Enoch? You won't last a month. Now, look, man. Dodge can use two hotels. There's plenty of trade here. Why, why don't you quit fighting each other? You're just scared of a little competition, Doby. You ain't slept a night since I started building. You got a ranch to run, Enoch. That's enough for one man. You shouldn't be pushing into other people's territory. Well, uh, you ain't gonna stop me, Doby. I've tried to stop you, and I'll go on trying. Eh, eh, Marshal, he's threatening me. You heard him. I'm gonna fight you, Enoch. I'm going to fight you all the way. <laughs> so now you'd better start staying up nights. 
That man belongs in jail, Marshal. Dobie's a hard one, ain't it? He'll give you a fight. But I don't think he'll do anything illegal. Oh, you don't, eh? Well, you just wait and see. And it's going to be your fault for not stopping him now. The whole blame is going to be on your shoulders, Marshal. And I ain't going to let nobody forget it. you doing here? Uh, I came by to tell you something, Matt. Oh? You ever hear of a man called Gil Shank? Uh, don't tell me he's in town. I met him at the Long Branch this afternoon. He didn't say much, but a man like that stands out like a white buffalo. Uh, you can pick him, Kitty. Yeah, Gil Shank's a gunman and a crook. He isn't wanted that I know of, but uh, he sure ought to be. I didn't figure him for a drummer. Well, I'll let him stay around a few days. See what he's up to, maybe. Well, there were a couple of men with him, but it's hard to say if they're friends, if they just met. Yeah, they're probably friends. Gil Shank never liked traveling alone. Much. Oh, they didn't look like gunmen, Matt. Just a couple of saddle buns. Oh, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, thanks for telling me, anyway, Kitty. Hello, Miss Kitty. Something to scare you, Chester? Worse than that, the new hotel's on fire. On fire? Uh On fire. And old Enoch saying Jim Doby there. Oh, the place. You you better get down there, Mr. Dillon. time I reached the fire, a bucket brigade had been formed, and there wasn't much to do but get in line myself. Even while we worked, I could tell the fire had been set, and that the wood had been soaked with kerosene. It was all over in a half hour, but not because we'd put it out. There was nothing left to burn. Next morning, I went back and had a talk with Enoch, and he'd already bought more lumber. Had his workmen busy cleaning up. This ain't gonna stop me, Marshal. Takes more than a little arson to stop Enoch Mills. Enoch, uh, I uh, guess there's no need to ask you who you think did it, is there? What? Jim Doby, of course. You know as well as I do. Yeah, but you don't have any proof of that. I got what proof I need. And if you was anything of a lawman at all, Doby would be in jail right now. Enoch, you know I can't arrest a man because you and he are enemies. Well, it don't matter. I ain't counting on you no more. I got other ways. Yes, sir. Hey, come in right there, Marshal. What? There. You mean Gil Shank? That's right. He seen me after the fire last night, and he, uh, he offered to go to work for me. What do you need a gunman for, Enoch? Yeah, that makes you sit up, don't it? Yeah. You and Doby both, you bet it does. 
Marshal Dillon. Well, now, this is a pleasure. He knows you're working for me, Shank. I told him. Just Shank, Enoch? What do you mean? Well, is he the only one you hired? I'm alone, Marshal, if that's what you're driving at. You're making a bad mistake, Enoch. You don't need a man like this. I could take offense at that, Marshal. No? Well, why don't you let me know when you decide, huh? I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, that's telling me. All right, we'll take care of Jim Doby next. You won't huh? do a thing to Jim Doby. Either one of you. Well, you're protecting the criminal, Marshal. But it ain't gonna work. Shank's got a plan. You said you was gonna figure something out, Shank. You done it? Well, Enoch, what with the law being so loose around here, we gotta protect your hotel day and night. How many riders you got out at the ranch? Sure, about 20. I want 15 of them. You what? I want them here in Dodge. We're going to put a guard around this building 24 hours a day. Well, I can't spare 15 men, Shank. Who's going to watch the cattle? You ain't moving cattle this time of year, are you? Of course not. Then five riders is enough. You want this hotel to go up or don't you? All right. I'll send for him. Hey. Hmm? You that Jim Doby over there? Yeah. That's him. Come to enjoy his dirty work, you guess. Shank. What, Marshal? The first sign of any of your dirty work, and I'm coming after you. Fast. Morning, Marshal. Dobby. Uh, I suppose I'm getting the blame for this. You are. Yeah. Then why ain't you arresting me? I've known you for a long time, Toby. You're pig-headed and you can be downright mean. But you don't fight this way. You make it hard to thank you, Marshal. You can thank me by laying off Enoch Mills for a while. There's going to be enough trouble without your making any. Nothing's going to happen after all, Mr. Dillon. What? Uh, I mean about old Enoch Mills' hotel. Been a week now, and everything is purely pawn peaceful. Well, what with 15 armed guards spilling one another day and night, it ought to be. Mm. I didn't see that fellow Gil Shank running yesterday. Oh, Enoch said he rode down to Tuscosa. What for? To hold up the bank? It wouldn't surprise me. No, okay. Well, here's Mr. Botkin. Huh? Well, morning, Marshal. Morning, Chester. Morning, Mr. Botkin. You look like you're dressed for traveling. Well, a banker doesn't do all his work behind a desk, Marshal. I've been looking over some land up north the last couple of days. Oh, did you have a good trip? Fine, except for crossing the Pawnee. We're almost in flood. And how'd you make it? Well, I was lucky, Chester. Some cowboys were taking a herd across, and they gave me a hand. Swimming a herd across the Pawnee this time of year? Yes. Must have had a thousand head, Marshal. Well, uh... Who was it? I, I don't know anybody moving cattle now. They were strangers to me. Huh. Uh, what was the brand? I'm afraid I'm not much of a brand reader, Marshal. Oh, you, you think you could draw it for me? Um, 
Come over here in the dirt, Mr. Buck. All right. Here. Here's a stick. Now, uh, what did it look like? Well, there was a circle here and a line through it, like this. It stopped just about here. Well, everybody knows that brand, Mr. Buck. Everybody but me, I guess. Where would they be taking those cattle, Marshal? Only one place. The Greystone Indian Agency is about 20 miles beyond there. Oh, they're going to sell them to the agency, eh? Well, they won't get top prices, but it's always a fast cash sale. Chester. Yes, sir? Go saddle three horses and tie them up behind the office, and then wait for me. I'll be back after dark. <laughs> Go ahead, Enoch. You don't know what you're bringing me here this time of night for, Marshal? Well, I got everything ready, Mr. Dillon. Ah, good, Chester. You got everything ready for what? Well, I don't know exactly, Mr. Mill. You do... Oh, I think you're both crazy. Well, now, here, that's no way to talk. Nobody's done nothing to you. I suppose burning my hotel down was nothing, huh? It, it wasn't a hotel. It was only the frame of one. Chester, I'm beginning to think you and the Marshal was in on it. Hmm? Both of you. You're such big friends of that Jim Doby. You'll believe most anything, won't you, Enoch? Anything but what you tell me, Marshal Dillon. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, it's sure enough true. All right, I'm getting out of here now. I got nothing to say to you, and you got nothing to say to me. Don't know why I come here in the first place. Wait a minute, Enoch. Well, make it fast. I will. I was going to try to explain something to you, but I can see that it'd be a waste of time. You all through? No, I'm just getting started. All right, give me that gun, Marshal. I'm going to keep it for you, Enoch. Right here in my belt. You arresting him for something, Mr. Dillon? No, I'm not arresting him, Chester. I'm kidnapping him. Enoch Mills was about as mad as any man I'd ever seen. But I managed to get him on a horse, and then he and Chester and I rode quietly out of Dodge. But noon next day, we'd covered some 60 miles and were at the Greystone Indian Agency. It was run by a man called Albert Leach, who didn't seem too bright, but at least I could tell he wasn't a grafter like most. I had a talk with him, and I brought Enoch in to meet him. Come in, gentlemen, come in. Have a chair. You give me a chair, mister. I'll bash both your heads in with it. Now, really, Mr. Mills, how come you know my name? Marshal Dillon told me. Uh, this is Albert Leach, and he runs the agency. I don't care who he is or what he runs. He's got anything to do with whatever it is you're up to, Marshal. He's going to end up in jail, too. Good heavens. Uh, don't worry about it, Leach. Enoch was up all night. I think I put him in a bad temper. Look, uh, Leach, I want you to tell him how many cattle you bought yesterday. 
1,012 head. Mm Mm-hmm. And you paid $15 a head. Well, then you robbed somebody. Any couch and walk's worth $20. The government never pays over 15, Mr. Mel. Which is why I never sell to the government. Uh, We haven't got much time. Have you paid for those cattle yet, Leach? No. The boss will be here any minute to collect the money. In fact, that's him riding in now. Yeah. All right, you pay him, Leach, and we'll wait in the other room. I understand, Marshal. Come on in. You're getting yourself in deeper and deeper, Marshal. But I've about decided you won't go to jail. Just gonna lock you up in a madhouse. Quiet now, you Just listen. Well, you got some money, mister? Are you the boss of that outfit? Enoch Mills is the boss. I run it for him. What? Be quiet. Come on, give me the money. I ain't got it. Well, that's Gil Shank. Well, hurry it up, mister. Now, where's the money? Oh, I'll kill him. I'll kill him with my bare hands. No, wait a minute. In it. Dirty thief, Shank. What are you doing here? Dylan. Hold it, Shank. Yeah, you killed him, Marshal. You're not hit, are you, Enoch? No, no, I missed me. That's what he wanted my men guarding the hotel for. That rotten criminal. He had some help. We're going to be a long time finding him. I don't care about them. You got him. He set that fire, Enoch. He planned the whole thing. He had it figured out. Why didn't you tell me? You won't believe anything I say. Remember? I've been a fool, Marshal. Looks like I owe you an apology. Never mind me. What about Jim Doby? You've given him a bad name. I don't know, Marshal. I never should have started that hotel in the first place. I'm a cattleman. I'm no... Innkeeper. You mean you're not going to finish it? Oh, I'll finish it. But then you know what I'm going to do? I'll go to Jim Doby and... And I'll ask him to run it for me. You think he'll do it, Marshal? Yeah, he'll do it, Enoch. And whenever you come to town, he might even let you stay there. If you behave yourself. William Conrad. You know, on the frontier, an outlaw was called a gunman, while a peace officer was referred to as a gunfighter. But they both lived by their guns. And they usually died by them. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Stobkin, Vic Perrin, John Daner, Harry Bartell, and Joe Duvall. Harley Bear as Chester, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. If you're a young man of draft age or a veteran, the National Guard offers you many outstanding opportunities. Contact your local National Guard unit for details.
New Hotel, an episode of Gunsmoke from the week after Valentine's Day in 1956. By the way, there's a recording of the rehearsal of that broadcast, with the cast and crew making jokes and cracking one another up. The sound effects and music jokes are particularly funny. You'll find a link to it on our social media. We're on Facebook at The Big Broadcast and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and our email address is bigbroadcast at wamu.org. On the radio, we come to you over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog, Mike Kidd, and Kennedy Wright are our audio engineers. A hundred years ago, nearly all radio stations were what we'd now call public broadcasters. Their licenses were held by colleges and universities, civic groups, labor unions, and the like. The federal official responsible for overseeing radio then, the Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, championed that state of affairs. Nearly a century ago, he declared, Radio has been a powerful educational force. It has stimulated the appreciation of good music. It has made science, the arts, the professions, the daily lives of other men and women familiar to all the people. It has vastly enriched the lives of shut-ins and residents of remote places. It has made transmission of news instantaneous. And as early as 1922, the future president said, It is inconceivable that we should allow so great a possibility for service to be drowned in advertising chatter. Well, sorry, Mr. Hoover. That same year, 1922, on this very date, in fact, station WEAF in New York City broadcast a commercial announcement, the first of tens of millions of ads that would appear over the next century on radio, TV, and now digital media. By some estimates, the average American encounters as many as 10,000 ads in a single day. That station, WEAF, was licensed at the time to the American Telephone and Telegraph Corporation. For years, they'd been making money by charging people for the time they spent talking to one another on the phone. So they figured they could do the same thing on the radio, charging for the time it takes to talk to a lot of people on the air. In the late afternoon of Monday, August 28, 1922, listeners to WEAF heard something like this. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Visit our new apartment homes in Hawthorne Court, Jackson Heights, where you may enjoy community life in a friendly environment. It must have worked. The station got 50 bucks for its time, and today, a hundred years later, the Hawthorne Court apartments are still around and apparently thriving. What you just heard, by the way, was not the original commercial of which no recording was made, but a recreation that WEAF did on the 30th anniversary of the event in 1952. Tonight, we're not really celebrating, but we are taking note of the 100th anniversary of the very first commercial. And we can't do so without listening to some of the parodies of commercials that the great radio comedians produced over the years. We'll hear from Fred Allen a little later on tonight, and right now from two men who regularly made fun of commercials, Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding. 
From their earliest days on radio in the 1940s, Bob and Ray savaged commercials in their witty, low-key way. Mostly, they did it by using joke sponsors, and we in the audience couldn't get enough of their ads for such fake companies as the Monongahela Metal Foundry, casting steel ingots with the housewife in mind, the Auburn Motor Car Company, makers of fine automobiles up to but not including 1938, the United States Mint, one of the nation's leading producers of genuine U.S. currency, Mushies, the cereal that gets soggy even without adding milk or cream, and Einbinder Flypaper, the brand you've gradually grown to trust over the course of three generations. That last one's always been my favorite. So here are a couple of Einbinder ads, anthologized in a couple of recordings, so it's hard to know exactly when they were done. The second one deals with supply chain issues and probably comes from one of the team's Carnegie Hall concerts in 1984. In the first one, you'll hear Bob Elliott, and in the second, Ray Goulding, Bob and Ray. Here's an early warm weather tip from the makers of Einbinder flypaper. Friends, summer will be with us before we know it. And that's the time of year when even frequent bathing fails to prevent many of us from drawing flies. But there's no longer a need to let personal embarrassment over this problem interfere with your summer fun. Just drape a few strips of flypaper around your clothing whenever you leave the house and be free of those swarms of insects that used to hover around you. Remember, there's no need to be a wallflower when summer comes if you protect yourself with flypaper. But with your personal popularity at stake, be sure to ask for the best. Genuine Einbinder flypaper, the brand you've gradually grown to trust over the course of three generations. Now, uh, let me pass on a timely shopping reminder from the makers of Einbinder flypaper. Friends, I'm sure you're all aware of the worldwide shortage of high-quality stickum that's used in the manufacture of flypaper. Prices have been skyrocketing by the embargo on glue from Cuba, the banning of exports from the Philippines, and the failure of this year's crop in Poland. And now that you're being urged to help fight inflation by limiting your purchases of flypaper, and you'll want to be sure you're getting the very best. So always ask for genuine Einbinder flypaper, the brand you've gradually grown to trust over the course of three generations. Buy a small amount today. Bob and Ray parodying the commercial here on the decidedly non-commercial big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. As we do with Gunsmoke, we eliminate the commercials on Dragnet. We have to delete all cigarette ads, except on those rare occasions when they're woven into the comedy of, say, Jack Benny's shows. When we edit them, it's kind of astonishing to hear what some of those cigarette ads contained. The sponsor of Dragnet, for example, claimed that they were presenting the detective show, quote, as a service to the public, end quote just one of the many deceitful claims tobacco companies broadcast over American airwaves for nearly 50 years until President Richard Nixon signed legislation in 1970 outlawing their ads. The last cigarette commercials were broadcast on New Year's Eve that same year. So, without commercial interruption, let's listen to an episode called The Big Mink. It comes from June 22, 1950, NBC and Dragnet. 
The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. The owner of a fur store has been shot and killed. Your only lead, a missing fur coat. The killer is at large. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Saturday, November 23rd. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Blaine Steed, captain of homicide. My name's Friday. It was 6.35 p.m. and we got to the corner of Western and Lexington. The Western fur shop. Hi, Brennan. Hi. What happened, Frank? The owner's been shot. His name's Albert Carver. Yeah. Who is that? Mrs. Carver. Haven't been able to get anything out of her. Where's the body? In the back. Munkers is back there. Did you call the lab? Yeah. Jones on his way. Photographer and fingerprint men with him. All right, let's take a look. Nothing seems to be messed up. Back room is. It was a small shop. A couple of fur coats on dummies on one side of the store, and on the other, a tall glass case holding about 15 more. Mrs. Kreiber sat on a straight back chair staring at the floor. We went through the curtains into the back room of the store. Sprawled out on the floor at the far end of the room was the body of a man. He had a fur coat gripped in one hand. Sergeant Munkries from Hollywood Division was standing by. What do you figure, Mo? Looks like a couple of hours. Did you call the coroner? Yeah. How long have you been here, Monk? Just a couple of minutes. You think Mrs. Kreiber moved anything here? I don't think so. She was sitting in that chair when we got here. I don't think she's moved except to call in. Did she put in the call? Yeah. Empty shells down on the floor. You got a pencil? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 32. Yeah. You think robbery? I don't know. Let's talk to the wife. Wait a minute. Bottle here. Yeah. Sierra Valley Wine Company. World's finest muscatel. 27 cents a pint. Nobody touched this today. No, well, I've been here, no. Okay. Let's get out front. Anything in the customer files, Brennan? Not so far. Have you tried to talk to Miss Kreiber again? No, pretty bad. Let's give it a try. Miss Kreiber? I'm Sergeant Friday. This is Sergeant Romero. We'd like to talk to you if we could. We know how you must feel, but there are a few questions that we have to ask you. Did you telephone the police? We have to know how it happened, Miss Kreiber. Miss Kreiber? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what happened? Uh, who, who is it? What do you want? We're police officers. Oh, Albert. Albert's dead. Albert! 
someone call the police? Miss Graber, we are the police. My husband's been murdered. He's dead. <laughs> we better leave her. Friday. Hmm? Here's something I found in the customer file. Mm-hmm. Miss Terry Shepard, 10113 Normandy, apartment 3. What about it? She took a coat out that was in storage. Took it out today. Well, we'll check her out when we're finished here. Thanks. Looks like the only hot receipt in the file. Hi, Lee. Joe, yeah. In the back room. What is it? Killing. Monkeys will show you. Okay. That's all. Think we ought to try the wife again? can try. <laughs> Miss Kreiber, can we do anything for you? Oh, I'm a little better. I... I'll try to tell you what I can. All right. When did you get here? It must have been about six o'clock, a few minutes after. I came to take him home. Any customers around? No, the store was empty. I stood here for a few minutes waiting, and then I went in the back and... <laughs> yes, I... Was the front door open? No. Yes, the front door? Yes, ma'am, the front. Yes, open. Did you telephone the police? I, I think I did. Did you come here to pick him up? No. No, usually he drives home himself. I came down on the streetcar to ride home with him. What kind of a car do you have? An Oldsmobile. 1939 or 40, I guess it is. Where does he usually park? In the rear of the store, this little place. But... I'll take a look. All right. Where is your home? 3412 Northwestern. I thought there was something wrong when I, I got a telegram from him. He said not to come down tonight. He said he'd be home late. What time was that? About four o'clock. Oh, I'm all mixed up. I, I haven't told it to you as I remember it. First, yes, first I telephoned here to the shop. That was this afternoon? Yes, 3.30. I'm sure of that because I... I made some other calls. I spoke to Albert. He didn't say he was going to be late. Then at 4 o'clock, I received the telegram. Do you have that with you? Yes, it's in my purse somewhere. 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 Oh, here it is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Don't come down. I won't be home until late after see a customer, Albert. Can I keep this? We'll return it to you. Yes. What'd you do after you got this wire, Miss Kreiber? Well, well, nothing. I, I thought it was strange, but I didn't think too much about it. Then I, I started wondering why he didn't say anything over the telephone about being late. So well, I came down here on the streetcar. Did you phone the store just before you left your house? Yes, but there was no answer. Parking lot's empty. Better get out an APB on the car, huh? Miss Kreiber, you said your car was a 1939 or 40 Oldsmobile, didn't you? 1940. I remember now. What model is that? 
backwards sedan, light blue. Do you remember the license number? Well, I have it on this chain with the extra keys. Here it is, on this little tag. The veterans make these. Thank you. Joe, can I see him now? Sure. Excuse me, Miss Kramer. Do, do you want me to wait? I, I'd like to go home. We'd like you to wait for a little while, yes. Do you have any relatives living here? A niece and a nephew in Beverly Hills. Jerome Reed. They live on Cannon Drive. All right, we'll call them for you. Thank you. Lee, is this phone out here all right to handle? Yeah, it's been dusted. Okay. Joe, you coming in? Yeah, right away. Pretty clear, easy to trace. Mm-hmm. I'd say he was standing over here by the curtains when he was shot. That's where the stains begin. Mm-hmm. And he must have stumbled along this glass case. You can see the smears here in the glass where he tried to grab hold of something. Yeah. And I guess he caught hold of that fur coat and pulled it down with him. Mm-hmm. Then he stumbled and bumped up against this coat bag, fell through that and up against the safe. How many times was he hit? Six empty casings on the floor. Looks like four through-and-through through wounds. Thirty-two, huh? That's right. The wife know if anything's missing? Yeah, she's in pretty bad shape. It looks to me like somebody took his wristwatch and a ring from his left hand. If he had a billfold, that's gone. No coat. All the trouser pockets are turned inside out. And what about that wine bottle? It's smeared. Can't lift a thing. Okay, thanks. Ben? I'm still on the phone. Okay. No, no, no. License 15, Boston. 6707. No, 707. Yeah. Driver might be on. Hang on a minute, Wallace. What? Now, give that DMV, will you? Save another call. Miss Kreiber, did your husband have a wallet? Yes. Yes, brown alligator. Did he keep his identification in it? Yes. Did he carry much cash? No, just a few dollars. He was always afraid of holdups. Thank you. You want to give that to him, Ben? Yeah, okay. Hey, Wallace, suspect might have a brown alligator wallet with identification cards of Albert Kreiber. Yeah, that's C-R-I-B, Boston, B, Boston, New York. 3412 Northwestern Avenue. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, bye. Joe? Hmm. Yeah, Monk? Invoice from a far north fur company. Three mink coats delivered here today. I looked all around. I only found two, one missing. Did you find a sales slip for the other one? No. Miss Kreiber, would you come over here, please? Yes. Where are they, Monk? Over here. All right. Over this way. Well, these are mink coats here, aren't they? Yes. Yes, wild mink. Albert told me he ordered them. Yes, ma'am. We found the invoice. He ordered three. There are only two here. Do you know anything about any of his customers? No. No, I don't. I never met any of them. Oh, I remember now. Just the night before last, he called someone from home, told her he'd have some minks in today, and she could come in and look them over. Do you know who that was? I, I didn't hear any name. Miss Kreiber, do you have any idea who might have wanted to shoot your husband? No, none at all. He was friendly with everyone. Everybody liked Albert. He didn't run around. He, he was either working or at home. Did he drink? Not at all. No, I mean beer, a little wine no, maybe? No, no, He never touched anything. All right, thank you. Brennan, will you see that Miss Kreiber gets to her nephews? Right away. Thank you. Might as well go, Ben. Yeah. We can 
talk to some of the neighbors. Six shots fired. Wonder why nobody heard him. Pretty heavy traffic outside, huh? Somebody wanted a mink coat pretty bad. Coat like that costs quite a bit, doesn't it? This one's going to come a little high. Yeah. p.m. Most of the stores along the street were closed, but a small shoe repair shop across the street was open, so we went over there. On the window was one word, Pete's, and a picture of a shoe. Sitting in the window was a small, dark man wearing a leather apron. He was working on a pair of shoes. Hello. We're police officers. I see you drive up across the street. Are you Pete? Sure. Uh, What happens to Mr. Kreiber? He's robbed? No, he was killed. No. Shot? I do not hear anything. Have you been sitting in your window all afternoon? Oh, most all the time. You see, I have machinery here. I advertise that way. People watch me. Mm-hmm. Do you remember seeing anybody going into Mr. Kriber's this afternoon? Uh, this afternoon, the four men. Uh, two, three, long black cars. Uh-huh. Anybody else? Uh, some. Were they women? Officer, they are all women. Did any of them walk out with a new fur coat? Uh, They're all that. I do not see all of them, I guess, but I see two. Can you describe them? Uh, One beautiful young girl, tall, red hair. She walked out with a big package. What time was that? Three, four o'clock. The second woman is about the same time. Funny thing. I do not see the bottle, but Benny from liquor store and corner tell me the second one, the blonde, she buys bottle of wine. Did he tell you what kind? No. Reason I remember, I laugh when he tell me. I go over to Benny's for a can of beer. Uh, he tells me she buys cheap wine, walks out of Cribers with new fur coat. <laughs> me, I spend five dollars for good wine, and my wife has no fur coat. How old was this blonde? How was she dressed? Uh, she's maybe twenty-five. Young, you know, not too young, but young. She has on slacks, uh, gray. Mm-hmm. What kind of a fur coat was she wearing when she came out? Mink. Look from here like mink. I see. Did you notice where she went? Mm. The blonde, the gray slacks, mink coat. Yes, it turned the corner onto Lexington and she went up the street. Did you see Mr. Kreiber's car drive away? No, he parked in back. I don't see him come in. I don't see him come out. All right. Thanks a lot, Pete. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, officer... Uh, That blonde. Something wrong there. How do you mean? Well, she has got fur coat, but she drinks wrong wine. I don't understand. Why do you say that? $5,000 coat, 27 cent wine. 7.45 p.m. Ben and I questioned Benny Davis at the safety liquor store. He remembered the blonde and said she bought a bottle of Sierra Valley Muscatel from him between 2.30 and 3 o'clock that afternoon. He'd never seen her before. We contacted communications and gave a description of the blonde to supplement the all-points bulletin. Then we started checking Western Union offices to find out where Mrs. Kreiber's telegram had been sent from. We finally traced it to the office at Normandy and Hollywood Boulevard. The operator who sent the telegram to Mrs. Kreiber also remembered receiving the call. She told us that the person who phoned in the message was a woman. The time, 3.22 p.m. We asked her to put a tracer on it and told her we'd check back. 8.24 p.m., Ben and I went to 10113 Normandy to talk to Miss Terry Shepard, whose name had appeared in the customer files at the first store. 
The receipt showed she'd taken a coat out of storage that afternoon. This is something like the place the wife and I used to live in. Yeah? Same people must have built it. Apartment 3. Miss Terry Shepard. Police officers, Miss Shepard. Oh? What's wrong? We'd like to talk to you. What about? What if you could come out here, please? Well, I just got out of the shower. You'll have to wait a minute. Yeah? Yeah, this place has got the same floor plan as mine. Yeah. Kind of small, isn't it? Mm, not too bad. Wonder what rent she pays. Uh, you don't mind if I wear this tubing, do you? My hair's wet. It's all right. We're sorry to bother you. What can I do for you? You got a fur coat, Miss Shepard? Yeah, sure. What if we could see it, please? Sure, but I don't think it'll thrill you. It's only muskrat. I bought it in Pittsburgh. Where is it, McLaughlin? Yeah. I'll get it. It's uh, down the hallway, first door on the right. I think I know where it is. What's this all about, Lieutenant? What time were you at the Western Fur Shop today? Oh, I'd say 3 o'clock. Why? What'd you do while you were down there? I got my coat out of Hawk. I had it there during the warm weather. Paid the man, signed something, and uh, he put the coat in the box, and I took it. Do you know Mr. Kreiber down there, the man that owns the store? You got me. The man was about 50. His hair was a little gray. I hardly even looked at him. This is the only fur coat, Joe. Could have passed for mink when I first bought it. It's pretty sad now, isn't it? Not mink. I'll give that closet a last check. All right. What happened? Did somebody steal a coat? Was anybody else in the store while you were there? Yeah. Yeah, there was another girl there. What was she doing? Nothing, just sitting. Do you remember how she was dressed? Oh, she was wearing a gray suit, slacks, blonde. Her face wasn't much, but she had a neat little figure. Do you remember anything else about her? Well, I didn't pay that much attention. Anything else in there, Ben? Not a thing, Joe. Maybe I'd better take this towel off my head. It doesn't look so hot when it's wet, but it's natural. It's natural red. Yeah. Is there anything else that you might be able to tell us? Mm, I think that's about all. I gave the man my claim check and the money... He got the coat and put it in a box and gave me a receipt. Mm-hmm. Nothing else? No. Well, when I got the receipt, I saw the blonde walk over and pick up the telephone. I was just leaving then. Did you hear any of the conversation? She asked for Western Union. You are listening to Dragnet. Sunday, November 24th, 9 a.m. Ben and I contacted the owners of all the shops in the vicinity, but none of them saw or heard anything at the time of the shooting. Officers Brennan and Monkreys interviewed all the regular customers of Albert Kreiber's fur shop. Only three had been in the store on Saturday, but none of them had noticed anything wrong. 11.35 a.m. We spoke to Mrs. Kreiber again, but she could add nothing to her story. Her niece and nephew had been to a football game at the Coliseum in the afternoon and knew nothing had happened until they were telephoned by Officer Brennan. 2.55 p.m. We spoke to all the tenants of the apartment house at 5513 Lexington, which is in the rear of the fur shop. None of them had been home, but the owner told us that he had some men working on the roof of the apartment house at the time of the murder. Through the owner of the Durable Roof Company, we traced the two men who had been working on the roof, and they told us that about 4 o'clock they had seen a blonde dressed in gray slacks enter the parking space in the rear of Kreiber's fur store. They whistled at her, but she paid no attention to them. She got into an Oldsmobile and drove east on Lexington. 
7 p.m. We checked in at the office and got word that Albert Kreiber's car had been located in a parking lot at Vermont and 8th. We drove down to the location and talked to the parking lot attendant. Well, the car must have come in sometime last night. It probably came in the back way because I don't remember it coming in, and it doesn't have our lot tag on it. Did you work all last night? No, I finished at midnight and started at 10 this morning. I kept waiting for somebody to claim this thing, and, well, and after supper, I figured it might be stolen, so I phoned the police. It's been sitting here all that time. Are there any keys in it? No, sir, there weren't last night either. Have you ever seen this particular car before? No, sir. Have you ever seen a blonde woman about 25 wearing gray slacks? You mean hanging around here? Yeah, or in the neighborhood. Yeah, but not today or yesterday. Do you remember one? Well, yes, sir. Does she drink a lot? Maybe. Well, there's one that hangs out in these bars around here. Once in a while, she comes in the lot, but not lately. When did you see her last? Oh, a couple of weeks ago. Was she with anyone? Yeah, but I don't remember him. <laughs> I've seen her with a lot of different guys. Does she hang around with anybody in particular? Yeah, her husband. Before leaving the parking lot, we pulled the rotor out of the distributor so that nobody could drive the car away. 8.12 p.m. We called Homicide and asked for more men to canvas the bars in the neighborhood. Ben and I staked out on the car. We sat in our car across the street from the parking lot until midnight. Nobody showed up to claim the car. The streets were almost empty. Our only chance was that the blonde lived in the neighborhood or was in a bar and would sooner or later try to claim the car. 1.53 a.m. Hmm. What rent do you suppose that shepherd girl pays? You got me. 75? I don't know. I bet I pay more than she does. Is that Monkreys? Yeah. Hi, Monk. Hi. Let's take a look up the street. See that couple? Where? Coming this way. Blonde, gray slacks, fur coat. She's pretty drunk. Where'd you spot her? Turned the corner from Olympic. They've been looking in parking lots. Monk, there's a rear entrance to this lot off the alley. Do you want to cover that? Yeah. Thank you. You see him all right? That's it. Where'd they walk under that light? Yeah. Pretty drunk. Looks like the same kind of coat, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stopping. Looking for another parking lot, I guess. Sierra Valley Wine. World's finest muscatel. And going into the parking lot. She's not carrying a purse. Those coats don't have pockets big enough for a thirty-two automatic. That stuff sure gets people. All right, let's go. They're getting in Kriber's car. Look, we can't even find the door. She's helping us. You take the other side of the car, will you? Yeah. Stop pushing me. <laughs> Who are you? Police officers. Can I see your driver's license, please? I ain't got a driver's license. And what's going on? What's your name? Betty Moore. What's it to you? The registration slip on the steering column says Albert Kreiber. What's the matter with this car, anyway? Who's uh, Albert Kreiber? Oh, I know who he is. Uh, this guy here. Who's this man? Huh? What say? He's a friend. That satisfy you? Yeah, I'm a friend. What's the matter with this thing? Take a look in the glove compartment, Ben. You okay. Come on, honey. Let's get going, huh? Yeah. It's locked. What do you want in there for? Let me have those keys. Hey. Here you are, Ben. I'm about going home. There's nothing in there. Let's go. Here's a purse. Give me that. You keep your hands in the wheel. It's a gun, 32. It's his. It's empty anyway. There's nothing wrong in that. You have a permit to carry it? 
Yeah, I got a permit. Can I see it? I lost it. Give me those keys. Keep your hands on that wheel. Here's a wallet. Identification cards, Albert Kreiber. Where'd you get these? I don't know. The man's watch, Albert Kreiber engraved on the back. Who's Albert Kreiber? I don't know, I told you. All right, let's get out of the car. Hey, let me push it. Why didn't that car start? All right, come on, stand up. You get over there. Where'd you get the fur coat? I bought it. Where? I don't know. Joe, look at her slacks. Wine stains. I spilled wine on them. What kind of wine? Muscatel. Muscatel isn't a red wine, it's a white wine. Who's Albert Kreiber? I don't know. This is his wallet, this is his car. Where'd you get him? I don't know. I don't know. This is the gun you shot him with? This is the gun you shot him with? <laughs> I was going out with him. He said he'd give me a fur coat. He promised me a watch and he never gave me one. And then we sent a telegram to his wife and everything. <laughs> Give me a fur coat and take me out. <laughs> Back down on me. So you shot him? Sure I did. He promised me the coat. He said I could have any coat in the shop. <laughs> he promised me. What are you crying for? You got the coat. <laughs> story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On February 27th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 86, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. <laughs> Betty Moore was tried and convicted of second-degree murder and received sentence as prescribed by law. She is now serving her term in the state penitentiary at Tehachapi. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. From the first full day of summer in 1950, the episode called The Big Mink from Dragnet and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog, Mike Kidd, and Kennedy Wright are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. As we take note of the centennial tonight of that ever-present broadcast phenomenon, the commercial... We have to acknowledge that some of the greatest creative minds in our country have turned their talents to that questionable form over the past hundred years. I hope it's not too curmudgeonly of me to say that makes me a little sad, wondering if some of those folks could have made more substantial contributions to the art, music, and literature of our country. In any case, in the first few decades of commercial broadcasting, ad agencies were endlessly inventing new ways to sell things to people. Here's an example. Promotional prize giveaways and sweepstakes had been around for more than a century when radio came along, but some advertising genius figured out that the new medium could take those contests to a whole nother level, involving millions of people at once. Maybe it was the same Madison Avenue wizard who came up with the idea for a kind of mini-essay contest. Complete this sentence in 25 words or less. 
That's not the main reason we're going to hear an episode of Grand Central Station right now. It's a lovely story of the Broadway stage. But do listen to the commercials. What a 1946 Chrysler sedan has to do with Pillsbury cake flour may not be obvious to you till you hear that you do have to send in a box top from the flour to be eligible to win the car. From CBS, December 1st, 1945, and with a quotation toward the end from William Makepeace Thackeray's novel Vanity Fair, Come, children, let us shut up the box and the puppets, it's an episode called Larkspur to Feed the Soul from the series Grand Central Station. Snowsheen Cake Flower brings you Grand Central its target shining rails in every part of our great country are aimed at Grand Central Station, part of the nation's greatest city. Drawn by the magnetic force of the fantastic metropolis, day and night, great trains rush toward the Hudson River, sweep down its eastern bank for 140 miles, flash briefly by the long red row of tenement houses south of 125th Street, dive with a roar into the two-and-one-half-mile tunnel which burrows beneath the glittering spike of Park Avenue, and then... Crossroads of a million private lives. Gigantic stage on which are played a thousand farmers daily. This is a love story. For stage-struck souls who have at one time or another been intoxicated by the heady perfume of the theater. But when you feel that deep within you there burns that divine but dizzy spark which will win you fame and fortune back of the footlights. Remember, the door to the stage is not on the great white way. It usually opens off an alley. Outside just such a stage door, cross town from Grand Central Station, a tired line of hopefuls wait in the cobble-paved alley. The great Leslie Ashton is casting a new play, and near the head of the line, two pretty girls are talking. Well, Julia, how much longer do you think we'll have to stand outside the stage door before the great Mr. Ashton will see us? Oh, we'll get there. Why, we've moved up almost three feet in less than half an hour. Why do they do this to us? Just to weed out the weaklings, Ellie. It takes a lot of stamina to become an actress. Well, I've never felt so weeded out in all my life. I ought to give up and go back to Cleveland. Oh, come on, Ellie. Chin up. That isn't like you. But I've got to be fair to David. He generously gave me a year to make good. Yeah. He's nice. Mm. I guess I should have married him last year. But, Julia, I just had to have my chance at the theater. Oh, sure. You get that driving little fire way down inside you that you can act, and nothing will put it out until you try. I, I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe I'm just not an actress. But in the old country, my mother used to... Excuse me. 
Oh, no, not just the little tricks of the stage, but how to feel and, and truly breathe life into a part. Yes, 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 that's all very interesting, yes, but... Uh... Oh, it's so humiliating to stand here under this, under this spotlight and be expected, like, like, like a stupid, unfeeling Well, now, look here. Look here yourself, Mr. Ashton. You may be a wonderful director, as they say you are, but you are not a human being. You do not have the superhuman instinct of kindness anywhere in you. And as for you discovering talent, you couldn't even recognize an actress unless you brought Gaffey David from other Broadway producers. Goodbye, Mr. Ashton. In a few moments, we'll return to Pillsbury's Grand Central Station drama. Yes, sirree. Their first ride in their 1946 Chrysler Royal Sedan. Some occasion, eh, son? You bet. Well, friends, that could be you driving that Chrysler Sedan. Of course, you may not be able to buy a car like that for a long time. But you do have a mighty good chance of winning one in the Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cake Flower Discovery Contest. Pillsbury is offering a 1946 Chrysler plus 310 other wonderful prizes. And all you have to do is tell what you've discovered about Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cakes. Just complete this sentence. I discovered Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cakes are... And mail your entry, together with one Pillsbury Snow Sheen box top, to Pillsbury, Box 311, Minneapolis 1, Minnesota. There'll be more details about Pillsbury's exciting discovery contest a little later in the program. So, keep listening. And now we return to Pillsbury's Grand Central Station. There's no Park Avenue penthouse, Russell, that is home to Julia and me. Oh, it's swell. And it was swell of you to ask me, huh, Ellie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Frankly, I guess I did it because I sort of felt responsible for you not getting your chance at Ashley. Oh, never mind about that. After what you went through with them, I guess it doesn't matter. Nothing matters at the moment except coffee. You two kids sit down. I'll have it perking in a minute. Take the big chair, Russell. Huh? Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> Say, Say, you know, that's a beautiful bunch of flowers. Oh, yes? I'm glad you like them. They are lockster, my favorite. I'm like the poet. If I have the two loaves of bread, I sell one and buy lockster to feed my soul. To feed your soul? <laughs> yes. The sight of lockster always gives me new courage. Oh, we had a lot of it at home. I used to think it was my lucky flower. I guess you need a little new courage now and then. Sorry, Ashton upset you so. I shouldn't have told him off. But, well, that's over and done with. Too bad you and Julia couldn't have been present for my first and last appearance on any Broadway stage. Oh, no. Oh, no, Ellie, you're not really two of the theater. Well, other women are happy with their families and little white houses and green lawns. But but, but what made you come to New York, Russell? What made you try the stage? Well, uh, it's kind of hard to say. You just put me down as a guy who loves the theater. But, Russell, why do you want to be an actor? You don't really, do you? Why not? Well, I, I, I mean, you're not an extrovert or a show-off. You're sensitive. You shrink from the idea of attracting too much attention. And actors don't. Oh, no, no. They, they love it. They have to, to succeed. Why, some of them even hire press agents to publicize their whims and tantrums. They really live in a world of make-believe. Oh, you see, I know the failings of the people in a the theater, but I love them anyway. Well, 
I'll never be an actor now. Look. Look, Ellie. Why don't you try again? How do you know? Maybe Margaret, next time... times are all behind me. There's a man waiting for me in Cleveland. Oh. Oh, I see. Waiting to marry you, huh? Mm-hmm. You love him? I, uh... I, uh... Yes, I think so. Excuse me. Oh. Hello? Miss Ellie Dyson, please. Yes, speaking. Hmm. I want you for my show. Who is this? Aren't you the girl who stormed out on me this afternoon? Oh, you, you are... Yes, 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 this is Leslie Ashton. Oh. I want you to play Lily for me. Uh, play, play Lily? I, I don't understand. I've looked high and low for a girl with a special foreign sort of charm. Oh. Just a touch of Viennese accent oh. and a dash of fire in her. Oh. I tell you, you're it. Oh, but, but you said that I... Report at the theater for rehearsal Monday at 10. I'll have a contract ready. Well, my thank you, but, but I... Monday, 10 o'clock. Uh, yes, Miss Ashton. Goodbye, Miss Dayton. Goodbye. Hold it. Hold it, everybody. That's all today. But let's have those lines down cold by tomorrow. Yes, Miss Ashton. That goes for every member of the cast except you. I'm delighted with what you're doing. You have a natural sense of timing and the makings of a fine actress. Thank you very much. But don't overstudy the part. I don't want you to go stale. You villagers, go for your costume fitting at four o'clock and the rest of the cast back here at 11 tomorrow morning. That's all. All right. Back at 11, everybody. Russell. Russell, where are you? Over here in the safe box. Oh, now I see you. Oh, let's go up to my place for coffee. I'm out on my feet. How was the rehearsal? Oh, swell. Oh, Ellie, Ellie, you're going to be all right. I hope you don't mind having to sneak into stairs like this. They don't like to have spectators at the early rehearsals, you know. Oh, that's all right. I don't think they'll throw me out. If Mr. Ashton knew you were here, he might not like it. Hmm? Ashton mm-hmm. saw me here today. He did? What did he say? Uh, you know it? Oh, in a way, yes. Well, that means that... That means... I can come every day if I want to. This coffee is stronger than a Polish wrestler. I ran it through three times. I hope you don't mind, Russell. (laughs) Not at all. And here's yours, Ellie. Thank you. Uh, Russell, one lump or none? As if we had sugar. (laughs) None, thanks. I'll play this just as it is. Well, how'd she do, Russell? You saw the rehearsal. Oh. Oh, she's going to be good, Julia. You should see her in that final scene. You know, she, she gives me that old lump in the throat every time she does it. <laughs> I'm going to do some more work on it. It's a beautiful scene. Do, do you think oh, I can... I'll go. All right. Whatever we're selling, we don't want it. <laughs> does uh, Miss Ellie Dason live here? Oh, oh, oh yes. Well, ah. <laughs> Hello, Ellie. Golly, it's good to see oh, you. Well, come in. Come in. Oh, this is my roommate, Julia. Howdy. Hello, Julia. This is Russell Russell, David Parker. Nice to meet you, Mr. Parker. Uh, Russ, Russell? He's an actor, and he won't bite you. Oh, well, same to you, Mr. Russell. Any friend of Ellie's is a friend of mine. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, too bad you couldn't get here in time for Ellie's rehearsal today. Rehearsal? Yes, didn't you get my letter? I've got a part on Broadway, David. The play opens in two weeks. A swell part. That's not keeping your bargain, Ellie. You wanted a year to make a success on Broadway. Well, you haven't done it. Besides, you can't like living here. Oh, Julia and I expect to find a better place the minute the show opens. 
But suppose it flops. I've read about these things. Three out of four plays are failures. This one isn't going to flop. Oh, no, no. It can't. Look, Ellie. I came to say this, so I'm going to. I've thought about it a lot. Which do you want? The theater or me? Why, David, it now, isn't David, like you uh, to... I, uh, I know this is none of my business, but... Well, you, you wouldn't want her to give up a big chance now after she's waited so long for it and worked so hard. Well, for the rest of your life, you and Ellie'd always wonder what might have been if she'd gone ahead with the play. Now, David, wait until opening night, then if the play is... A yeah, flop, the show's never a flop until the closing notice is up on the cardboard. Is that the way you want it, Ellie? Mm-hmm. You want me to wait, darling? Would you? Would you, David? If I fail this time, if I don't make a go of my big chance, I'll marry you the very next day. I'll go with you anywhere, gladly. All right, my sweet. Thank you. You win. I'll wait until after opening night. The curtain falls. In just a moment, Pillsbury's Grand Central Station drama will continue. A bride of two weeks. She's been married two years. But now Bill's out of the army and... Guess what, Bill? I baked you a homecoming cake. Now, honey, I love you dearly, but... But that so-called cake you made out of camp... But, darling, that was before I discovered Pillsbury Snow Sheen cake flour. And what a delectable difference that discovery can make. And why, I use the very same recipe, and my cake always comes out perfect with Pillsbury Snow Sheen flour. Then put that discovery to profit. Write it down and submit it for a prize in the Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cake Flour Discovery Contest. Oh, picture me and Bill in that new Chrysler. Well, think of the hours you'd save with one of those Westinghouse laundromats or a streamlined Westinghouse iron. Just complete this sentence in 25 words or less. I discovered Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cakes are... I might say, I discovered Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cakes are always a success. How about adding... They're satin smooth and feathery fine. And so fluffy and tall. Mm. And my snow sheen cakes have a scrumptious flavor. Swell. You can send as many entries as you like, but enclose a box top from Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cake Flour with each one and mail to Pillsbury, Box 311, Minneapolis 1, Minnesota. Remember, just finish the sentence, I discovered Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cakes are... and mail together with one box top from Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cake Flour to Pillsbury... Box 311, Minneapolis 1, Minnesota. And you may be the winner of that brand new 1946 Chrysler sedan or one of those 310 other exciting prizes. And now we return to Pillsbury's Grand Central Station drama. Now, Ellie, keep it calm, will you? Hundreds of plays have opened before. Oh, Julia, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Look, look, look at this dressing room. Look at the flowers and these telegrams. Oh, everybody, just everybody is wishing me well. Everybody? You, you mean Russell? Oh, he hasn't forgotten. I'm sure he hasn't. He said last night that he'd be here to cheer for me. Maybe he, maybe he hasn't got a dress suit. Then he'll come in his tweets. Oh, I've just got to know he's out there tonight. I've, I've. You what, Ellie? I've come to depend on him, Julia. Just knowing he was out there in the house all during rehearsals, it's helped me. Helped me so much. I've been playing this whole show to him. May I make a slightly corny observation, dear? 
What, Julia? You love that guy. There's no life for me without him. That's what I thought. Well, you better be good tonight. David is out there in the fifth row, ready to pounce on you and haul you off to Cleveland if the play is a flop. Yes? Well, Ellie, how do you feel? Hello, Julia. Hello. Oh, Mr. Ashton, will it be all right? Do you think I'll be all right? My dear, you'll be a sensation. You'd better be, or our backer is going to lose an awful lot of money. Our angel? Who is he? You don't know the angel of this production, uh -uh. Mr. Lowe? Well, it's about time you met him. He sent you this box of flowers. Matter of fact, he made a special point of asking me if I'd bring them back to you. Flowers from the angel? How exciting. Oh, yes. oh what's the matter, Ellie? Uh, you, you say this is from our angel? The man who financed this show? Yes, why? Roxbury. An armful of Roxbury. Russell. Yes. Russell. Hmm, an angel in an old tweed suit. There's the call for on stage. Lenny. Lenny, oh, my dear. You mustn't think of it. You see, darling, I'm not afraid, not anymore. Now I know that as long as there is darkness, just as surely will there be a sunrise. A golden, glorious sunrise for this land of ours. Ours to plow and to seed and to harvest. Ours to watch like loving parents while it sleeps under its winter blanket of snow. Ours to tend with deep devotion as it wakes to fragrance in the spring. Ours, darling. Our land, Lenny. Our world. Magnificent. Oh. Wonderful. You bowl them over like a... Well, your name will be all over this town tomorrow. Oh, thank you. But, but, but how do you think the critics like it? Well, I talked to two of them. Yes? They didn't like to play too much, but every one of them has rushed off to write a rave notice about you. The play failed? I'm afraid so, but what's the difference? You're made. I've got a new star on my hands. Now, don't sign anything with anyone else, Ellie. Uh. Promise... Not until I can get a new contract drawn. Uh, yes, yes, of course. But but the play is a flop. I'll find you another play. A dozen. Where's Russell? He's coming. I'll see you later. Remember, just don't sign anything. Excuse me, Mr. Ashton. Oh, oh, Ellie, you were terrific. Russell. Oh, Russell. Oh, I'm proud of you. Why didn't you tell me? Tell you what, dear? You're Russell Lowe. This is your play, too. You had your money in it. Oh, that. Oh, don't worry about that. That doesn't matter now. We'll find you another play, a better one. <laughs> well, Ashen said if the play flopped, you'd lose a lot of money. Then I saw your flowers, that, that lovely locks, to, to give me courage. I, I did so want the play to be a success. <laughs> I, I tried, Russell. I tried. I gave the very best I had in me. Oh, I know. I know you did, Ellie. And you did it for me. Why, Ellie, you made the author's words electric. Your part came alive and glowed. It lighted your inner feeling. That's what's important, don't you see, dear? 
Yes, yes. Because I love you, Ellie. You oh, do? From the moment I saw you outside our stage door, the day you took me for an actor. I, I love you too, Russell. I've known it ever so long. You'll marry me? I'd marry you tomorrow, Russell, except... Except what? Ellie! Oh, <laughs> Ellie, you did it, kid. You really got it. I always knew you did. Thank you, Julia. Hello, David. Congratulations, Ellie. I... Well, what Julia said goes for me, too. What do you mean? You're wonderful, Ellie. You're really wonderful. You're an actress, every bit of you. I sat out there watching you. Watching you walk right out of my life. You belong in the theater, Ellie. And you mustn't give it up for me or for anything in the world. Not for me, not for Cleveland. But I promised. And I wish you all the success in the world. And you too, Russell. Thank you, David. Well... Julia and I think that you two might want to be alone. She has an idea she wants to show me in New York. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is, if it's all right with you, Ellie. Oh, why, of course. I, I think it's a wonderful idea. And David. Yes, Ellie. Thank you. You're very sweet. Well, if you ever play the Hannah Theater in Cleveland, Ellie, I'll be right there in the front row. Goodbye. Goodbye, Russell. Goodbye, Ellie. So Goodbye. Coming, Julia. Okay. Well, as Thackeray said, come, children, let us shut up the box and the puppets, for our play is played out. So long, you bright little starlet. So long, Russell. Bye. Uh, tell me about Cleveland, David. Is it as nice as they <laughs> You know something, Ellie? Uh-huh. She's a good gal. Uh-huh. I don't know, Ellie. I, I, I love theater people. <laughs> Especially you, dearest. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Darling... Remember what you asked me a minute ago? Mm-hmm. I asked you to marry me. Yeah. And you said you would marry me tomorrow, except... Yes. I said, except what? Except tomorrow is so far away. Oh, darling, couldn't we get married tonight? <laughs> Grand Central Station, the episode called Larkspur to Feed the Soul from the first post-war autumn in 1945. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. One reason for that car sweepstakes we just heard was the fact that very few Americans were permitted to buy automobiles during World War II. So the prospect of a big new sedan was a flashy incentive indeed. In time, car commercials became numerous on the radio, and nowadays, of course, they seem to dominate TV. You'll hear all about the brand-new Buick and about RCA Victor Televisions and Anison Pain Reliever in this January 20th, 1951 spy adventure that includes performances by Howard McNear, Doc Adams on Gunsmoke, and a pretty imaginative creator of radio commercials himself, Stan Freeberg. In this drama, we think he's the character called Colonel Cecil. Starring Herbert Marshall, it's an episode of the NBC series, The Man Called X. 
Now we present Herbert Marshall as The Man Called X, the Saturday night feature on NBC's five-show festival of comedy, music, mystery, and drama, brought to you by RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. By the makers of Anacin, for fast relief from pain of headache, neuritis, neuralgia. And by your local Buick, introduce the new 1951 Buick. Be sure to see it. Herbert Marshall as the man called X. Wherever there is mystery, intrigue, romance in all the strange and dangerous places of the world, there you will find the man called X. Here's a word from RCA Victor. Inch for inch, your best buy in television is RCA Victor 19-inch. Yes, a great many American families have taken this advice and bought the thrilling RCA Victor 19-inch console. Truly, the most exciting buy in television. When you set out to become an RCA Victor million-proof television set owner, remember that the set you choose will be the very hub of your home for years to come. So select the model you really want most, and chances are that model will be the Kingley RCA Victor 19-inch console. Inch for inch, your best buy in television. Your 19-inch set will give you, in a great big way, all the matchless million-proof qualities of sight and sound possible only to the world leader in electronics. Yes, inch for inch, your best buy in television is indeed RCA Victor 19-inch. And with it goes wishes to you and your family for all the warmth and good cheer of million-proof television by RCA Victor. The big black limousine moves at moderate speed through the crowded streets from Tokyo Airport toward occupation headquarters in the Daiichi building. Within the limousine are one of our highest state officials traveling incognito is Mr. White and Ken Thurston, the man called X. The car moves up to the heavily guarded entrance of the Daiichi building and slows to a stop. Bonsai! 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 Get down! Get down! Well, Colonel Cecil, you identified him? Yes, we have, Thurston. His name was Saduki, a young student at Kayo University. Kayo University? Mm-hmm. And as you know, Mr. White's arrival here was a closely guarded security secret. Yeah. How did uh, Saduki get past the MPs? Well, that's something I thought you could tell us. Me? Yes. Saduki was carrying a bureau pass, signed by Ken Thurston. <laughs> Chief, you remember what happened at Nagoya about three months ago? Nagoya? Yeah, just before the Incheon invasion. Oh, sure, sure. One of our troop ships bound for Korea was nearly blown up by an unidentified one-man submarine. Yes, and a month ago a private jet plane crashed accidentally near the army air base at Ashia. It carried enough high explosives to have leveled it, if it had hit the target. tied up with this attempted assassination of Mr. White? I'm getting right to work on it. What have you got to go on? Caillou University and the man who forged my name on Siduki's bureau pass. Any idea who it is, Ken? Chief, 
Only one man in the world has had enough practice to get away with it. Pagon Zellschmidt. I beg your pardon, Mr. Thurston. My name is Nikolai Krachenko. I'm corresponding with TASS, the Soviet News Service. So? I uh, am quite familiar with Cairo University... And the attempted assassination of Mr. Uh, White is public knowledge. If you are seeking information concerning Siduki here, I could be a valuable aid to you. What makes you think I'm interested, Kachenko? I told you I was a news correspondent, Mr. Thorsten. It is my business to know about men like you. That doesn't explain your knowing about Siduki. And why not? The name of the man who attacked White has been kept top secret at headquarters. Try again sometime, Kachenko. Maybe you'll have better luck. Thank you, Mr. Thorsten. I shall. Well. You are surprised at something? No, I'm pleased. Is Professor Hawkins in? Yes. I'm Natasha Koroya, his secretary. And you must be Mr. Thurston. That's right. Professor Hawkins informed me that you would be calling upon him this afternoon. How unfortunate. Oh. A girl has her dreams, you know, Mr. Thurston. Knights in shining armor. And what happens? When such a one walks into his office... He wishes to see Professor Hawkins. Oh, well, I... If you have some spare time after discussing assassinations and Sudoku with Professor Hawkins, perhaps we might have a drink together. I'm rather tired of sipping sake with Russian news correspondents. Oh, thanks for telling me that you know Krachenko. Now perhaps you will wonder what else I might know and attempt to worm the information out of me over, shall we say, martinis? <laughs> you win, Miss Karoye. The Hotel Imperial Bar at 8.30 tonight? Hotel Imperial, 8.30. Oh, dear, oh, dear. If I'd had any idea that I would become involved in government investigations, I would never have accepted this exchange professorship at Cayo University. Oh, no. No, it's not as bad as that, Professor Hawkins. You're not being investigated. Suduki is. Eh? What's that? Suduki? What do you know about him? Why, he is a student of mine. That's all, specializing in subsoil microorganisms. Oh, he's very good at it, too. Very good. Excellent paper on his last field trip. Oh, excellent. Your classes take many field trips, Professor? They take field trips? Oh, of course. They, yes, of course. How else could they study actual soil conditions? Ever taken in near the Army Air Base at Ashia or at Nagoya? Well, all I know about Suduki is that he is an excellent student. You should read his last paper entitled... Bacillus botulinus and the subsoil of Usumi. Oh, yeah, all right, brilliant. Professor, yeah. yes, What sir. information do your files show about him? You know, it's strange that you should ask me that, uh, Mr. Thurston. That's very strange. Oh? I checked our student files just prior to your visit here. It was very surprising. Very. We just don't seem to have any information regarding him. Well, how is that possible? Well, it isn't. That is, it shouldn't be. But I made a very extensive search, added by the registrar and by Mr. Krachenko. We simply couldn't find anything. What's a Russian news correspondent got to do with this? What's that Russian news? Oh, you mean Nikolai Krachenko? Oh, he is taking some courses at the university. The Art of Basket Weaving, a university administration. Uh, uh, oh, no, 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 I'm afraid I can't tell you any more about it. Oh, <laughs> but of course, what's the matter with me? I do have some information about Suduki. Uh, it's right here in the paper he wrote about Osumi. Uh, uh, yes, uh, here it is. 
On the flyleaf. It's his home address. Well, that's something. What is it? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I told you. Bacillus botulinus and subsoil of a soil. I mean Sudoku's address, Professor. Oh, yes, of course, yes. It's uh, number 213 Kobe Road. 213 Kobe Road. Oh, pardon me, please. <clears throat> Professor Hawkins speaking. Who? A Mr. X? No, 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 no. There's no one here by that, that name. That calls for me, Professor, if you don't mind. Yes, Hello? Hello, Mr. Thurston. Pagon. That's right. Long time to see, eh, Mr. Thurston? Where are you? Outside in the reception room, talking to this cute little cookie, Natasha. I'm all ready to drive you to your next stop. Huh? Sure. Number 213 Kobe Road. But it's just like I said, Mr. X. I was here in Tokyo, temporarily embarrassed for funds, you understand? And when this, uh, this Suzuki joker gave me a job learning him how to talk English... Well, naturally, he knew I was an American. My, my accent, you understand? Oh, sure, sure. He gave me room and board. I gave him English lessons. You also gave him a bureau pass with my name forged to it. Sure. Siduki found out you were in Tokyo, and he said he had some absolutely top-drawer secret stuff to tell you. But we couldn't get past those military cops at Daiichi, and then I found this bureau pass. Yeah, where? In my wallet. And naturally, you had to have this top-secret information of Siduki, so I wrote up a pass for him. To do a favor. Oh, just for all Lang's sake. Pagan, I ought to wring your neck. <laughs> Always joking, eh, Mr. Thurston? Anyways, when I saw you leave headquarters, I followed you to university, and here we are. Number 213, Kobe Road. Okay, let's go in. I want to look over Sadduka's things. Go right in, Mr. X. The door is open. Anything worthwhile stealing already? <laughs> I mean, go right in, right in, Hmm, looks like somebody's been packing. That's Siduki's stuff. Yeah, it's all his. He was going to leave on a field trip or, or something. Uh, he couldn't use these to do any research. Huh? You mean those Japanese dime novels? They're pamphlets, instruction manuals. Issued during the war to kamikaze battalions. Well, 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 imagine that. So that's what Siduki was studying at the university. He was studying them, all right, but not at the university. This ties it all up. Ties what up? The attempt on Mr. White's life, the sub at Nagoya, the plane at the Shia. Come on, Pagon. We're taking these back to the colonel at occupation headquarters. Cut your throttle, chum. Mr. X. You're not taking off with nothing. Yeah, I see him, Pagon. That rates you 20-20, chum. Figuring you did miss a persuade in my hand. No, I didn't. Hey, what's the with this character, Mr. X? Even I can't understand what he's saying. He wants these pamphlets, Pagon. <laughs> Give a gentleman a cigar, Herman. He just rang a bell. And, uh... One more little handy hint. Don't try making like gorgeous George. You're in the land that invented judo, remember? The pamphlets. Ah, you activate nicely, chum. Just keep on piling up your points like that. You never wind up with a section eight. Any other free advice? Brother, I'm so full of it, I should be toting four stars. Oh, I uh, understand your honorable ancestors are nuts for guys who remember anything about Mitsubishi 101. Mitsubishi 101? That's right, brother. You start beating your gums anywhere about that little number, you'll join those honorable ancestors. Chop, chop. Any questions? No? Okay, chums. I'll bow. You're sure about your identification, Thurston? That ribbon is the pearl cinched it, Colonel Cecil. 
I was there when they gave it to him. He's Nicky Hidayo, all right. A Nisa who won the Congressional Medal of Honor in Italy. All right. I'll have every available man in G2 start tracking him down at once. Here we are, Mr. X, arriving safe and sane. The Hotel Imperial. Yeah, thanks for the lift. See you later. Oh, don't mention, Mr. Hey, what do you mean later? We got a date inside there with that luscious lotus bloom, Natasha Koroye. I've got a date, Pagon. So long. But, Mr. Thurston, I. <laughs> How do you like that? Such ingratitude. I should ought to stop giving my man valuable services right now. And I would, if it wasn't for the, for the money in it. Your pardon, Mr. Zellschmidt. I am Nikolai Krachenko, news correspondent for TASS. And I'm greatly honored by this opportunity to interview the great Pagan Zelschmidt. Interview? Great. Uh, but, uh, but concerning your mission here in Japan with your assistant, Mr. Thurston, I know it must be... Where? How strange. What? This money lying on the seat of your car. Hey, this is a C-note. That. I seem to have an uncanny faculty for finding hundred-dollar bills. It is? Uh, I mean, uh, you do? I mean, uh, <laughs> I will hop right into my jalopy, Nikolai, my, my oldest, my dearest friend, yeah. Now, what was it you wanted to ask me about my important mission to Japan? Well, I didn't expect to see you here tonight, Professor Hawkins. Eh? What's that? Uh, oh, it's you, Mr. Thurston. Oh, it's a ghastly place, isn't it? Ghastly. Why that girl insisted upon us coming here? I didn't know you'd been invited to Natasha's little party. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Natasha was most insistent that I be here. Did she tell you why? No, no, no. No. Come to think of it, she didn't. Now, that's strange, isn't it? Yes, it's very strange. Your pardon, gentlemen. Would one of you be Mr. Ken Thurston? Here, waiter. So, it is a telephone call for you, Mr. Thurston. If you would care to receive it, sir. Sure. Where is it? Oh, this way, if you please, sir. I'll be right back, Professor. Oh, uh, of course. The telephone is here, please. Thanks. Oh, so. Oh. Ken. Is that you, Ken? Yep. What's up, Natasha? Something has happened. It concerns Sadduki. Oh? Yes. Ken, you must come up here to my room at once. All right, Natasha, what's the number? It is 314, and hurry. Natasha! Natasha, what's going on there? Mitsubishi 101. What? Mitsubishi 101. Mitsubishi... We will continue with The Man Called X in just a moment. The next time you suffer from pains of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia, take Anison. You will bless the day you heard of this incredibly fast way to relieve these pains. Now, the reason Anison is so wonderfully fast-acting and effective is this. Anison is like a doctor's prescription. That is, Anison contains not just one, but a combination of medically proven active ingredients in easy-to-take tablet form. Thousands of people have received envelopes containing anison tablets from their own dentist or physician, and in this way discovered the incredibly fast relief anison brings from pains of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia. So the next time a headache strikes, take anison for this wonderfully fast relief. Anison, 
A-N-A-C-I-N. Anison comes in handy boxes of 12 and 30. Economical family size bottles of 50 and 100. Get Anison at any drug counter. Now act two of The Man Called X, starring Herbert Marshall, with Leon Belasco as Pagan Zellschmidt. But I do not understand, Mr. Thurston. Why did Natasha ask us to meet her in her room? No, we'll soon find out. Here's 314. Really, Natasha, I must apologize for this rude entrance, but... Uh, Mr. Thurston, that's not Natasha. No. It's an easy Medal of Honor winner. By the name of Nikki Hidayo. He's conscious now, Thurston, but the doctor says he only has a few minutes left. Thanks, Colonel. How are you feeling, Nicky? Not too good, Champ. Not too good. What happened in that hotel room? I was booby-trapped, soldier. Who did it? Don't know. What were you mixed up in, Nicky? A new kamikaze movement? That's right, Champ. They're going all out. And their target? Anything American or... We were in, in Asia. How did you ever get roped into anything like that? I figured I'd be a hero again. Play secret agent all by myself. Turn him into G2. I tried to tip you at Sadukis. Couldn't make it. The local general was on my tail. Who is he? It's funny. I... I beat my choppers about your ancestors. Never figured I'd, I'd be meeting mine so soon. Nicky. <laughs> Thurston. Yeah. Oh, hello, uh, Professor Harkin's office. This is Ken Thurston, Professor. Oh, yes, yes. How do you do, Mr. Thurston? Do you still have that field trip report of Sadukis? The field trip? Yes, yes, I have it. It's right here. Then hang on to it. I'll be right down. Just a moment, please. I'll be right there. Sorry to have locked the door, Mr. Thurston. My nerves are not of the best. I'll have it opened right away, though. There we are. Now come right. What? And that's all I remember, Mr. Thurston. Whoever this person was struck me. When I regained consciousness, Sidukey's field trip report was gone. Then my hunch was right. Hunch? Yep. What was the title again, Professor? Was Bacillus Bacillinus in the subsoil of Osumi. Osumi. That's a small island off the coast near Tokyo, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. It's all right, Professor. Whoever it was is gone. Uh, our friend left a memento of his visit outside the door, Professor. A memento, Mr. Fiston? A newspaper. A copy of Pravda. Pravda? That's right. Published in Moscow. And it gets its Tokyo news from Nikolai Krachenko 
of the Test News Agency. Yes, Thurston, I remember the island of Osumi very well. Matter of fact, I planned several raids on it during the war. However, it was so badly demolished, no attempts have been made yet to rebuild it. Do you remember why we were so anxious to knock it out, Colonel? Mm, very clearly. It was an airplane factory, turning out kamikaze attack planes by the thousands. It wouldn't happen to have a to have been a Mitsubishi factory, would it? Mitsubishi factory number 101? Why, come to think of it, I believe it. Thurston. Yeah. Better have a speedboat ready for me at the Tokyo docks. Good evening, Mr. Thurston. Huh? Kuchenko? Yes. I'm most pleased that you remember me. What are you doing down here? A question that I was about to address to you. It would seem to be a strange hour of the night to go boating. If I'm correct in assuming that speedboat is waiting for you. Still trying, aren't you, Kuchenko? It was at your suggestion, Thurston. You asked me to try again. Remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I still can't take any chances. <laughs> oh, you, Mr. Thurston, are you? Pagong, how the devil did you get down here? Oh, that Colonel guy at G2 told me where you were. When I told him where I've been and what I learned for you. You see, I, I was all tied up with a very important man, a big newspaper fellow. Uh, and I wanted you to... Uh, hey... You met this newspaper guy, too? Ah, oh, small world, eh, Mr. X? I don't get it, Mr. Thurston. What are we doing walking around in this old, busted aeroplane factory, anyway? Checking the subsoil was through me. Huh? You know, sometimes you don't make any sense, Mr. X. Didn't I tell you I, I, I had a long talk with that Krachenka guy about kamikazes? He knows all about them. Did he tell you that? Or did you tell him? Now you're just splitting hairs. Anyway, there's nothing on this pile of junk to... Hey, what did you put up there? It's a firebomb cylinder. The kind we fill with napalm. What's napalm? Jetted gasoline. Used for incendiary bombing. So it was dropped here during the war. So, so what? Not this kind. We've only been using them since Korea. Hey, then maybe your hunch was right. Maybe maybe this island of Asumi is the headquarters for some kind of a, of a new kamikaze outfit. Would you like to answer that, Natasha? Natasha? <laughs> you come over here right after the hotel shooting, Natasha? That's right, Ken. After a few little detours. Mm-hmm. Like picking up a field trip report at Professor Hawkins and seeing the little lead was sprayed around later. Mr. Rex. This luscious lollipop, you mean the cheese? That's right, chum. I'm the four-star general Nicky talked about. And my little army's right behind me. Aren't you, boys? I wouldn't advise any foolish moves while we take you into headquarters. My lads are very allergic to knights in armor from the West. Well, Ken, what do you think of our little headquarters for the kamikazes? It explains your interest in Sudoku's field trip report. You were afraid something in it might tip me off to this place. What uh, happened at the hotel? Did you see Nicky around and figure he might spot us in the bar and spill something to me? Yeah, of course. 
And I wasn't going to take any chances with the wool I intended to pull over your eyes. So I planned on meeting in my room. Only he walked in on me while I was forming, so... Boy, you, you shoot people for practically nothing. No, not for nothing, Zellschmidt. From here, we control our entire movement throughout Japan. Train our leaders, choose our targets. Ease us for the Asiatics, and we'll not rest until that goal is achieved. Letting your slogan run away with you, aren't you, Natasha? What? It's not Asia you're after, it's the world. Look, this is all a very interesting and educational type talking, but uh, what about me? What's going to happen to me in all these things? I'm afraid that neither you nor Mr. Thurston will be around to see it. Wait, what? You, you mean... Yes, my friend. Oh, Mr. Thurston. Relax, Pagan, you're not dead yet. Don't let that comfort you. You will be soon. Mr. Rex. Going to play executioner yourself, Natasha? No. The gun is merely to prevent you from getting any ideas while I call some of my students. A few of them can use some practice at this sort What was that? Just something you overlooked, Natasha. What's going on out there? Maybe the colonel at G2 got nervous when I didn't radio. What are you talking I about? I told him I'd report in 30 minutes after we got here. Those are Navy patrol boats starting to land. I'm afraid your students won't last very long. And just so you won't get any ideas, Natasha, I'll take that gun. Lock that door, Pagan. Believe me, Mr. Rex, is practically dead. Ah, good. Now we can all settle down and relax for a few minutes. It shouldn't take too long until Mitsubishi 101 is rendered harmless again. Well, I guess we taught these kamikaze suiciders a lesson, Mr. X, eh? Boy, listen to those lovely guns. There's nothing lovely about them, Pagan. Why? As long as people anywhere can hear that sound, we haven't taught anybody a thing. Slogans, guns. They don't settle anything. They only lead to suicide. Not only for kamikazes, but for the world. That's the reason they've got to teach Natasha and all the rest of them. Yep. And maybe even ourselves. Our star, Herbert Marshall, will return in just a moment. You've read about them coming, you've heard about them coming, and now they're here. The new 1951 Buicks. Today, your nearest Buick dealer took the wraps off Buick's new all-star lineup for 51. A lineup that stretches the imagination of even Buick owners. With its new features, new style, new design, the 51 Buick hits a new high in smartness and distinction. You won't believe it until you see it. So, see the new 51 Buick first chance you get at your nearest Buick dealers. Your first look thrills you, your first ride tells you. The smart car, the smart performer, the smart buy for 51 is the new Buick. See it at your nearest Buick dealers now. Now, here is our star, Mr. Herbert Marshall. Thanks for being with us. In tonight's cast, you heard Gene Bates, Will Wright, Wilms Herbert, Stan Freeberg, Howard McNair, and Tony Barrett. Next week, Mr. X rides the Orient Express, the most famous train in the world for international crime intrigue. And believe me, he finds plenty of both, along with Leon Belasco's Pagon Zellschmidt. So join us, won't you, when next I return as the man called X. Good night.
Man Called X is a Saturday night feature on NBC's five-show festival of comedy, music, mystery, and drama. Brought to you by RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. By the makers of Anacin for fast relief from pain of headache, neuritis, neuralgia, and by your local Buick dealer, who just today introduced the new 1951 Buick. Be sure to see it. The Man Called X, starring Herbert Marshall, is a J. Richard Kennedy production with music composed and conducted by Felix Mills. Tonight's story was written by Sidney Marshall. All characters and incidents on this program are fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. Be sure to listen tomorrow evening for The Big Show with Tallulah Bankhead and a great parade of stars, the Sunday night feature of NBC's All-Star Festival. And so until next week, same time and same station... This is Jack Latham saying good night for The Man Called X. Now it's your hit parade. Tomorrow, hear the new Blanding Show on NBC. The Man Called X, an episode from the winter of 1951. And from the big broadcast, I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog, Mike Kidd, and Kennedy Wright are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. I don't use the word inconceivable very much nowadays, but it'd be almost inconceivable Maybe irresponsible is more like it, for us to do a vintage radio show about the centennial of commercials without including the greatest comic enemy of commercials and commercialism, Fred Allen. Nearly every Fred Allen show included a dig at the sponsor, or a parody of a commercial, or a takedown of one of those advertising contests like the one we heard tonight on Grand Central Station. Indeed, humor about the whole phenomenon of commercialism on the air was probably the most common subject for Mr. Allen's comedy, maybe second only to his famous fake feud with Jack Benny. And all of his shows were suffused with topical references, items taken from the daily newspapers, jokes about celebrities and politicians, and other things that would have been very familiar to his listeners. The problem we have is that many of those things aren't familiar to us 80 years on, in the Fred Allen show we're about to hear, for example, how's this for a list of references? The vaudevillian and radio quiz show host Phil Baker, the gossip columnist Walter Winchell, Creton upholstery fabric, a slang term for a nasty person, an icky, the symbols of the 1939 New York World's Fair, the Trilon and Parisphere, and its president, Grover Whalen, the New Deal program, the WPA, that gave people government jobs, the dramatic actors John Barrymore and Walter Hampton, the ceremonial or decorative scarf called a tippet, the Broadway shows Amphitryon 39 and Helzapoppin, Boulevard Watches, President Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chat broadcasts, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, the radio game show Professor Quiz, and the etiquette expert Emily Post. And I'm not sure I got all of them. All those topical jokes are one of the reasons Fred Allen is not so revered today as he was during and just after his lifetime, which ended in 1956. But listen to the targets of his satire. 
He not only skewers advertising and cheap radio comedy, he also takes aim at polls, market studies, focus groups, and data analysis, techniques that have pretty much taken over our lives today. And Mr. Allen saw it coming in 1939, if not before. One more note. We get two other treats in this broadcast, a display of Fred Allen's matchless ability to ad-lib with audience members, and an appearance by the man we remember today almost exclusively for his appearance as the cowardly lion in the movie The Wizard of Oz, Burt Lahr. You'll hear at least a hint of what made him the dominant Broadway comedian of the 1930s, and I'm betting he'll make you laugh. From NBC, October 11th, 1939, with, yes, more commercials, and the plump singer Wynne Murray performing two songs that became classics, Comes Love and Johnny One Note, it's The Fred Allen Show. The Fred Allen Show, brought to you by Panna Toothpaste for the smile of beauty, Sal Hepatica for the smile of health. An hour of smiles with Fred Allen, folks. 3,600 seconds of fun and music. Fun with our star comedian, Fred Allen. La-dee-da with our guest star, Bert Lauer, that cowardly fugitive from the Wizard of Oz. Music with Peter Van Steeden, with that all-American swing quartet, the Merry Max. And with the sensational singing star of the boys from Syracuse, Wynne Murray. The time has come. It's the Fred Allen Show. similarity between the next voice you will hear and any living voice is purely coincidental and a figment of the acoustic. The unfortunate owner of this nasal impediment is Fred Allen in person. Thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, we assemble with good intentions. Oh, no, uh, uh, never uh, mind the good intentions, Fred. How are your jokes? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Harry. You know, radio is the one industry where the law of averages doesn't function. In radio, it always seems that a comedian's intentions and his jokes are direct opposites. And uh, you're here with good intentions tonight, Fred. The best, Harry. <laughs> uh, well, I'll be back later, Fred. Now, no, you don't. Wait a minute. You're going to stay right here with me and swelter. It's sure hot in here tonight, isn't yes. it? Hey, Pete. Yeah? When the band plays the next number, tell the trombones to blow over this way, will you? <laughs> what for? To get a little relief from this hot air around here. Why don't you stop talking? Uh, 
Now, if you're trying to get me hot under the collar, Mr. Van Steeden, the humidity has beaten you to it. Look, I show you in here. You see? <laughs> I've never seen heat like this in October, Harry. Have well, you... this is Indian summer, Fred. Well, we just had one Indian summer in September. Yeah. Well, I guess this year it's a double feature. <laughs> you think it is? Yeah. Well, it certainly was hot Saturday. I went up to see that uh, Alabama-Fordham game, remember? Oh, yeah. uh-huh. It got so hot in the first quarter, Fordham took out their fullback and put in a good humor man. <laughs> in the second, he had trouble going around the ends with his wagon, I might say. In the second... <laughs> they threw his vanilla for a loss. In the, in the... In the second quarter, they took the pigskin off the ball and put on a cretonne cover. <laughs> and towards the end of the game, you know, it finally got so hot... Say that, you know, <laughs> that knock just came in time, Harry. That next hot joke wasn't so hot. Fortunately. <laughs> Come in. Mr. Allen? Yeah? Are you back on the air for good? Yes. That's done it. Goodbye, all. Wait, wait, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold him, Harry. I got him. Go ahead. You came in here last Wednesday night. You pulled that same line, and then you shot yourself. I know, but last week I missed. <laughs> well, he didn't miss himself tonight. <laughs> you know, we ought to do this show in a morgue, Harry. It would save a lot of cleaning up around here. Huzzah, with all your patience, and welcome back Oh, now, wait. Today. What is this? An echo in the studio? Wasn't that your speech last week, Portland? Yes, but I didn't get a chance to say it. Well, it's a little late to welcome me back now. You, uh, you heard the show last week. Oh, was that the show? Uh-huh. <laughs> Mom, Mama said it was your rehearsal. Oh, no, no, no. We, uh, last week was the first program. Don't believe all you hear. Didn't your, didn't your mother hear it? Only part of it. What happened? In the middle of the program, Mama's portable radio got down off the table and went into the closet. The portable radio walked out on me. Well, that proves at least that this program is going places. Say, Harry, even if it's only in closets. Say, Harry, did you, uh, did you hear, you know, closets are handy with the moths in the closets and the millers on the program. Say, Harry, let it go. Let the house. Say, Harry, did you, uh, did you, did you hear any comments on last week's Fandango? Cross your heart. No, Fred. I uh, went right home and stayed in the house all week. Oh, right after the... Uh... Well, how about you, Pete? I didn't hear anybody speak right out, but... Uh... Yeah, I knew that was coming. <laughs> that little conjunction. But, uh, but what? The sponsor was seen talking to Phil Baker. <laughs> Through an interpreter, I suppose. <laughs> well, I'm getting nowhere in high. Well, look, did anyone see any notices, anything in the papers? I didn't see your name mentioned, but I did see a notice in Winchell's column. It could have meant you. Yeah, what did Walter say? The line read, What comedian is on his last eggs? What? <laughs> Mr. Van Steeden, did you ever have any hair on your head as a baby? No, uh, I was as bald as a honeydew. And your mother was nearsighted, wasn't she? How did you know? By your conversation. You are slap happy. I don't get it. Yes. How does Peter being bald as a baby and his mother being nearsighted make him slap happy? Well, she must have spanked him on the head. <laughs> if that's wit, I'm an icky. Well, that's wit. Then I'm an icky. Van Steeden? <laughs> 
is that fellow who's on his last eggs has company now, if you just know. <laughs> Van Steeden, you are a keen judge of character. Which line is no longer needed since you blew the other one? <laughs> now, where, where was I? You were trying to find out about last week's program. Oh, yes. Somebody must have heard it beside that guy on Variety. Let me see. Win. Win, Murray. Yes, Mr. Allen. Now, what was the reaction out your way? Where do you live? In Jackson Heights. Oh, Jackson Heights. That's a, a suburb of the World's Fair, isn't it? Yes, Jackson Heights overlooks the fair. Well, that was the trouble. Jackson Heights started overlooking the fair, and a trend set in. <laughs> you know, I hear that next summer they're going to start conscription to get people to go to the fair. <laughs> if you get in Class 1A, you have to pack up and leave right away. I wouldn't know, Mr. Allen. Oh, well, that's beside the point, as... Grover said when he put the perisphere next to the trilon. <laughs> what I really want to know, Wynn, is this. Did you hear anyone around Jackson Heights speaking about last week's program? Only my family. And uh, what did your family allow? They said there wasn't enough of me on the program. There wasn't enough? Of... <laughs> is there any more of you, Wynn? <laughs> on the program. No, this is all of me, thank heaven. Gosh, I'd, uh, I'd hate to have you on my mind, Wynn. You'd sure have a load. Yes, I would. Oh, don't pay any attention to Mr. Allen, Wynn. Nobody else around here does, Wynn. Oh, I can take it. Oh, I'm only kidding, Winnie. I'm just trying to find out how I can improve the program. Well, I can read. I can tell I can off read the a commercial for you. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, everybody. This may be trouble. Come in. You want an opinion? Uh, oh, you, uh, you heard the program? Yes. Yeah. And? It's too slow. You mean? Speed it up. I should. That's it. Bang, bang, bang. Goodbye. He must be in a fast business. I make minute rub. So long. <laughs> minute rub. Gee, that was the sponsor. You heard what he said, Alan. More speed. Okay, the sponsor wants speed. That's what he's going to get. Now, on your toes, everybody. We'll start the program over. Take it away, Pete. Hi, Pana. Sal presents... And here he is. Thank you, and And here she is. Hello. Well, you can't get it any faster than that. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Wynn Murray sings for you from Yokel Boy, that popular song, Come Love. <laughs> Comes a heat wave, you can 
hurry to the shore comes a summons. Comes love, nothing can be done. Comes the measles, you can quarantine the room. Comes a mousy. Comes love, nothing can be done. That's all, brother, if you've ever been in love. That's all, brother. You know, when I'm sleeping, up comes a nightmare. You can always stay awake, comes depression. Comes love, nothing can be done. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, and... Oh, a lack of day. Well, what's wrong, Fred? Well, I'm worried about myself these days, Harry. Oh, spots in front of your eyes? Oh, worse than that. Unfinished sentences ringing in my ears. Say, that sounds pretty grim, but I don't quite get the idea. Well, Saturday, I was riding on a bus. A woman in back of me said, so I stepped to the edge of the roof, closed my eyes, counted ten, and... And what, Fred? And the woman got off the bus. Oh. <laughs> I lay awake all night, Harry, wondering what happened next. Yeah, I see. Last night, coming out of the theater, I heard a man say, Look at that girl in red. Is she beautiful? Uh-uh. My mistake. And, Harry, I can't figure that one out either. Well, no, wait, Fred. Let's see. Uh, maybe the girl really was beautiful. And then she smiled. An unattractive smile that spoiled that whole first impression of loveliness. For you know, ladies and gentlemen, that a smile can make or mar your attractiveness. But it's even more important to know that the daily use of Ipana toothpaste can help you have a winning smile. You see, Ipana is especially designed not only to clean and brighten your teeth, but when used with massage, to help give your gums the stimulation they need for firmness and health. That's why so many dentists advise this easy, modern routine. Every time you brush your teeth with Ipana toothpaste, put a little extra Ipana on your brush or fingertip and massage it on your gums. Notice the remarkable difference the very first time you use Ipana this way. Notice the pleasant, tingling sensation as circulation speeds up and lazy gums start to waken. So make up your mind right now to stop at your drugstore tomorrow for an economical tube of Ipana toothpaste and help yourself to healthier gums and brighter teeth. The perfect combination for a winning smile. The Ipana smile. <laughs>
Peter. <laughs> Peter Van Steeden and his sawed-off Ipana troubadours have just played The Little Man Who Wasn't There. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we present our midget quiz. This is the shortest quiz in radio. Portland has selected three people from our studio audience to act as sort of an impromptu committee. Each person will be asked only one question. Each question pays $10. This quiz is entirely unrehearsed, ladies and gentlemen, and I can assure you that nothing has been prepared. If the contestants win any money when the time comes to settle, I shall prove that I am entirely unprepared. <laughs> and now, is your committee uh, committee ready, Portland? Yes, it is. And our first contestant is... Uh, Mr. Vincent Moore. Mr. Moore, how do you do? Fine, thanks, Mr. Allen. Uh, do you live in New York, do you, Mr. Moore? I do, Mr. Allen. You live here in New York? Yes. And what is your occupation, may I ask? Bartender. You're a bartender, are you? Bartender, yes. You're a contact man for backers, huh? <laughs> you, uh... You haven't brought any samples with you tonight, have no, you? No, <laughs> I wish you to come around a little before the program. We could have used a bartender. I was looking for somebody to put a head on Van Steven. <laughs> <laughs> now I, uh, well, uh, yours is not a profession to be laughed at, Mr. Moore. There are a great many changes I know have come to the bartending profession lately, haven't they? That's right. Say, what became of those old guys, the old walrus mustache guys, and the other fellows who used to draw the soap pictures on the mirrors? What became of them? I used to be on the WPN, Mr. But, well, they'll come back strong. Of course, you can't tell a tavern today. Most of them look like tea shops. And the old-fashioned bloated bartender, he's gone. The boys all look like clerks now. They tell me, they tell me there's a tavern over on Park Avenue where they, it looks like a tea shop. They even have a fortune teller in there. A lady goes around and reads the olives in your martini. <laughs> Do you want to uh, uh, ask, add a short uh, resume to what's been going on here? <laughs> no, I think I had enough, Mr. Adams. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I was just uh, uh, trying to, to give the folks an idea of our committee before we get started. Now, next, Portland. Uh, Miss Doris Riley. Miss Riley, uh, how are you tonight? Oh, just fine. <laughs> uh, do you live here in New York, do you? No, I'm from Boston. You live in Boston, do you? Yes. That's a peculiar thing. I, too, come from Boston, Mass. The only difference is, I guess you came voluntarily, and I came by request. <laughs> May I ask your uh, your occupation, Miss uh, Riley? Telephone operator. Telephone operator, are you? And uh, where? Uh, Boston Consolidated Gas Company. In the Boston Consolidated <laughs> Gas. <laughs> really? But it's not a laughing gas. Company. <laughs> You know, it just shows you what a what a small world this is, Miss Riley. My brother Bob works up there for the Boston Consolidated Gas Company. He's up there in Everett uh, making gas in Boston, and I'm over here making <laughs> gas. Are you uh, here on just a pleasure trip? Are you a little visit? Just over the weekend. Just over the weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, New York will be a great city if they ever get it finished. <laughs> have you uh, have you looked around? No, I haven't had time. I just yeah. get in. Did you miss the L on Sixth Avenue? <laughs> <laughs> They took it down, and then when they saw what 6th Avenue looked like, they were going to put it back up. <laughs> anyway, well, I hope you have a very pleasant weekend here, Miss Riley, and give my regards to my brother when you go up home again. I surely will. Uh, thank you. And next to Portland? Mr. Clyde Dorr. Mr. Dorr, how are you? Do you live in New York, do you? I do. You live in New York. We're lucky tonight. We're getting all people from near home here. <laughs> the, uh, what, may I ask your profession? 
I'm a chiropractor, Mr. You're Allen. You're a chiropractor, are you really? I'm well, very happy to meet another chiropractor. You know, we have a uh, <laughs> chiropractor on the program here. Is that Uncle Jim is an old retired <laughs> oh, chiropractor. He finally gave it up. He decided that he couldn't go on doing things behind people's backs. <laughs> Why is it that, Mr. Allen? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think that, uh, I think he, he uh, gives treatments occasionally. I saw an installment collector around here this morning mention something about an adjustment to Uncle Jim. <laughs> well, now we'll get down to our quiz. We only have three questions here. It doesn't make much difference, uh... Uh, whether they're answered or not, because you win even if you lose. First, Mr. Moore, I'm going to ask you, this question was filched from the world of books. Mr. John Steinbeck, the author of Mice and Men, recently wrote a new book which he called The Grapes of Wrath. Now, do you know from, from what the title of the book was taken? Was it a well-known book, play, or opera, The Grapes of Wrath? Let me think for a minute, Mr. Moore. Yes, I will. I'll be very happy. I wish I could join you. <laughs> Equipped, I certainly would. <laughs> Do you know where Mr. Steinbeck got the grapes of wrath? No, I couldn't ask you that. Well, it was taken from the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And now, Miss Riley, your question. Millions of dollars are spent in advertising each year to popular, uh, popularize slogans. Now, I'm going to ask you to complete these uh, supposedly well-known slogans. Quick, Henry. The uh, flip. Uh, good to... Good to... Shh, quiet, quiet. <laughs> good to... Good to... Good to the, uh, last... Oh, good to the last drop. Very good. Call for that man who's never answered. The little man who wasn't there. Call for, uh... Phil, uh, Phil, uh, uh, Phil. Uh, oh, Philip Morris. Philip Morris, right? I'd walk a mile for what? Uh, walk a mile for a, uh, uh, for a, uh, no, isn't it? Awful, it sounds... <laughs> well, it is if you own one, but you walk a mile for. Hold down, right? I heard that. A member on our own. Uh, Miss Riley? A camel. A camel. He, he told you I'll have to take a little off of the camel. They and they what? They and they what? They, uh, that slogan, the cigarette slogan, they what? They and they what? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's all right. I'll, uh, I'll overlook that. As far as I'm concerned, you're correct. I don't know what the other one was myself. And now, Mr. Dorr, this is a question in etiquette. If you are dining in a cafe and your napkin slips from your lap, is it considered good form to pick it up? I would say no. Uh, you are perfectly right. The, radar, the waiter will give you a fresh napkin. If you're eating in a cafeteria, of course, you can either throw a moth under the table to <laughs> eat the napkin up, or if it's a paper napkin, uh, etiquette says, Miss Post says that you can throw water on the paper napkin, stoop down, make a large spitball out of it. <laughs> Well, this really concludes our quiz. We have another feature we're going to start next week, ladies and gentlemen. It's called uh, the Question of the Week. You know, uh, on all these programs, the round table out in Chicago and the, the forum and the town hall, all have experts uh, talking on the vital topics of the day. Now, next week, we're going to start uh, a little series here, letting the, the, the little man discuss with me, if he can get a word in edgewise, uh, the topics of the day. Now, I want to thank you all for being so kind to us and helping us out tonight. And I'm going to present you each with a gift box 
containing all of the Bristol-Myers products, including Ipana and Salopatica. The meeting is now adjourned, and thank you very, very much. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Merry Max. Their song is dedicated to the Internal Revenue Department tonight. It's called, Do You Ever Think of Me? Gentlemen, according to my timely little reminder notebook, I see there are only 74 more days before Christmas. So this is a very good time to give you a few hints on your Yuletide oh, shopping. Pardon me, Fred, but don't you think a hint on tomorrow's shopping list would be a little more timely? Well, Mr. Von Zell, if you want to quibble, yes, I do. Well, then, ladies and gentlemen, I'd suggest that tomorrow you go to your druggist and get a tube of Ipana toothpaste to help you have brighter teeth firmer gums, and the kind of a smile you can be really proud of. You see, ladies and gentlemen, our teeth are seldom bright and sparkling when our gums are soft and tender. And the creamy, well-cooked foods we eat do not give our gums the stimulation they need for firmness and health. So frequently, pink toothbrush appears, the first warning signal of tender, ailing gums. When you see that, by all means, see your dentist. You may not be in for serious trouble, but let him decide. Usually, his verdict will be... Your gums are robbed of work by the soft, well-cooked food you eat. They need more exercise to keep them firm and healthy. And very often, he will add, Your gums will respond to the healthful stimulation of Ipana toothpaste and massage. So brush your teeth and massage your gums with Ipana regularly to help your gums to healthful firmness and to have cleaner, brighter teeth. Help give your smile a new and sparkling loveliness by faithfully using Ipana toothpaste.
Fred Allen Show will continue immediately after a short pause for your station identification. Present our invited guest, a man who comes to glorify the evening, a comedian. <laughs> oh, now, wait a minute, Harry. Try to hold in. <laughs> well, I can't hold in, Fred. I just saw him outside. Does he look funny? <laughs> yes. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this hilarious chap is. <laughs> oh, now, Portland. I saw him in the Wizard of Oz. Oh, boy, is he a wow. Quiet, quiet, you two. That guy's a riot. <laughs> Yes, that's what everybody says, folks. Meet the funniest man in the world, Bert Law. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. You're a dream, Mr. Law. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, everybody, for this boisterous welcome. Well, well, Bert, you're the funniest man in the world, so I'm going to keep quiet now and just let you get funny. Well, Fred, I, uh... uh let's go, Bertie, old boy. Well, uh... <laughs> This is embarrassing, Fred. Uh, I don't know how to tell you. Well, to tell me what, Bert? I don't feel funny. <laughs> Bert, after that build up, you don't feel funny. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things, I guess. I was funny all morning. I had the chambermaid screaming around the hotel. <laughs> the two I caught. <laughs> You were funny around the... Uh... I, I was funny all afternoon. You were? Over in Lindy's, a fly flew in my soup. Yeah? I called the waiter over and said, <laughs> Take this soup spoon and bring me a fly swatter. <laughs> Did they laugh? Laugh. <laughs> Twenty diners dropped their racing forms. <laughs> That's what I can't understand, Fred. All day long, you might say, I've, I've been a pixie on the wing. A gay blade. A, a spontaneous pantaloon. But right now, I don't, I don't feel, feel funny. funny. I heard you on Bing Crosby's program, Mr. Lar, and you were witty. I was brilliant, Portland. Remember that gag I told about the two patients meeting in Mayo's clinic? <laughs> the first patient says, Oh, this will kill you. <laughs> the first patient says, I'm aching from neuritis. And the second patient says, <laughs> I'm Mandelbaum from Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I was a rowdy that night. <laughs> I was in the groove with Crosby. Well, you don't. I, I can't understand what's, uh, what's the matter with you tonight. You don't think it's something mental. Mental with me? <laughs> Quit kidding. Well, you know, it could be your libido, Bert. Yeah, maybe it's my subconscious. Maybe I ought to see a psychoamethyst or something. <laughs> You know, with Crosby, I was another man. Oh, and could we use the other man right now? <laughs> I can't understand why you can be funny with Crosby and with me, nothing. Well, I don't know, Fred. I, I, I think I like to work with Bing. He, he gives me something. Well, I'm giving you something. Yeah, but with Bing, it was money. <laughs> I see what you mean. You, in other words, are averse to barter. Look, I'm broad-minded, Fred, but after all, what can I do with 200 tubes of toothpaste? 
Yes, I get your uh, your point, Bert. After all, <laughs> I'm a punt killer. After all, if you don't feel funny, let's forget the comedy tonight. We'll just kibitch around and chew the fat. You know, the public can't always expect a comedian to be funny. That's what I say. People think if one comedian is funny, two comedians should be twice as funny. Oh, it's silly. Now, here we are, you and I. You're a comedian, and I'm a comedian. We're together. Are we twice as funny? To the contrary. To corner phrase. <laughs> the corner phrase. Well, let's stop the whole thing. Say, how come you left Hollywood, Bert? You must have had a reason. Yes, Fred. Hollywood went too far. It was up to me. Well, what, what did you do? It was my turn to go too far. So I got on a train and came east. Oh, you mean out there you were getting in a rut artistically? Yeah, I was tired of being a great lover. You want? <laughs> you wanted to get away from it all? Well, most of it. There was a little blonde at Metro who might have intrigued me, but... <laughs> The silly little minx let me get away. <laughs> Say, you must have taken it hard. I was momentarily frustrated. Really? I renounced the human race. I sought solace in the animal kingdom. Oh, and that is how you came to play the lion in The Wizard of Oz? I would have played a flea on Bulldog Drummond. <laughs> well, you certainly did a swell job, Bert. You still look like a lion to me. That's the trouble. I got too far into character. <laughs> Why, I was even starting to molt. I, uh, I can tell by the top of your head there. Well, are you continuing your animal characterization? Not me. I'm, I'm sick of making a living on all fours. I want to play Ibsen, Chekhov, Odette. You know, one of those parts where I keep sipping cyanide of potassium all through the second act. <laughs> Well, do you really think you can play one of those serious roles? Why not? What have I got that if John Barrymore had, he'd get rid of right away? <laughs> but why, why should a successful comedian want to play tragedy? Oh, I'm a ham at heart, Fred. Give me a pair of spats, a bamboo cane, and a nod from all of Hampton, <laughs> and I'm in ecstasy. Say, what do you expect to do when you retire, Bert? Oh, I don't know. I may open a small toll bridge or something. <laughs> Well, now that we know your ambitions, what are you going to do here in the East besides fend off senility? I'm going into a new musical show, a sequel to Amphitryon 39. What's it called? Butterfield 4230. <laughs> Does the show look like a hit? Oh, yes. It's a little gem. <laughs> We're rehearsing in Tiffany's window. You're, uh, you're playing the lead, of course. No, it's just a bit. Ninety-two sides. A bit. Yeah, I'm on the stage two hours before the play begins. <laughs> I'm ever-present but unimportant. Well, what sort of a show is it, Bert? Well, the best way I can describe it is, uh, it's a 17th century hells of poppin'. It is. I thought hells of poppin' went farther back than that. <laughs> some of those well, what, uh, what character do you assume? Well, in the first act, I'm a subdued knave. A subdued knave. In the second act, I'm a tippet mender. Oh, you mend tippets, do you? <laughs> and in the last act, I play Gaspard Levine, the muscle man in a bistro. <laughs> you run the artistic uh, gamut, as it were. Yes. I range from the tentatively foul to the delightfully obnoxious. <laughs> In other words, you ignore the audience's heartstrings to get right to their nostrils. To put it bluntly, yes. 
My big scene is in the second act. As the tippet mender, I am discovered in Madame Pompadour's hope chest. Uh-huh. The king is bibbing in the anteroom. A Florentine enters. I suspect poltroonery. I tried Pompadour. When she is well chidden, <laughs> I degrade her. She has choose me. I gesundheit her. <laughs> the Florentine offers to roll the dice for Pompadour's favors. The dice are cocked. I'm undone. <laughs> just in time. It sounds like a great play, Bert. Yes, they just grabbed the author for observation. Uh, are you uh, are you singing in this show, Bert? Well, nothing to speak of. Uh, I cajole Madame Pompadour with a chansonnet. You do? Yeah. Well, say, how about a little chanson uh, now before you go? I hoped you would ask me to sing tonight, Fred. I really did. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Why? I want to get even with a guy in St. Paul. <laughs> form is your revenge taking, Bert? Well, I'll catch up with an old request. Roses of Picardy. Roses of Picardy. Wait a minute. He's lost the words. Wait a minute, Peter. I've got him, friend. Roses are shining in a Picardy. In the hush of the silver dew, roses are flowing in the Picardy, but there's never a rose like you, and roses will die with the summertime, and our rose. Maybe far farther apart, but there's a one rose that dies a lot in a Picardy. It's a rose that I keep in my heart. Thank you. A wire has just come in from the management of the Baldwin Locomotive Works. <laughs> Bert Lauer opens with Unit 701 <laughs> next Thursday morning. Uh, thank you, Bert. And now, uh, Wynn, say, did you, uh, did you uh, hear Bert's song, did you? Yes, I was out in the hall. Oh, you joined the audience, eh? Huh? <laughs> you know, Bert is really the Orson Welles of song. But now, going from the raucous ridiculous to the vocal sublime, Wynn, I'm going to ask you to sing an antidote to sort of offset little Bertie's uh, uh, cadenza here. Now, what would you suggest? Would you like to hear Johnny one note? Well, I certainly would. Johnny could only sing one note, and the note he sang was this. Was his age Couldn't hear the brass 
couldn't hear the drum. He was in a class by himself, by gum. Poor Johnny, one note, got an Aida. Indeed, a great chance to be brave. He took his one note, howled like the north wind, brought forth wind that made critics brave. While Verdi turned round in his grave, couldn't hear the flute or the big trombone. Everyone was mute. Johnny stood alone. Cats and dogs stopped yapping. Lions in the zoo all were jealous at Johnny's big thrill. Thunderclaps stopped clapping. Traffic ceased its roar. And they tell us Niagara stood still. He stopped the train. Whistles, boat whistles, steam whistles, pop whistles, ball whistles, Gentlemen, I would like to introduce a discovery of mine, a gentleman whose imitation of birds and animals is positively astounding. His repertoire includes wild turkeys, bull moose, mockingbirds, and even the trumpeting of elephants. Uh, look, uh, excuse me, Mr. Allen. Just seals tonight. Just, uh, seals? I'm sorry. Just seals. Yes, but for an artist of your versatility... Yes, I know. It's humiliating. But I'm getting a cold, and no matter what I imitate, it sounds like a seal barking anyhow. Oh, I am sorry. Me too. I hate letting you down like this, but there just isn't anything I could do about it. Oh, I think there is. Just you follow this very sensible suggestion of Harry Von Zell. Don't ever neglect a cold. At the very first warning sniffle or sneeze, take sparkling sal hepatica. For believe me, ladies and gentlemen, the sooner you do, the better. Because sal hepatica helps fast. And in these two very important ways. First, sal hepatica is a quick yet gentle-acting laxative, and speed is mighty necessary in fighting a cold. Second, sal hepatica also helps nature counteract the acidity that so often accompanies a cold. And because of this double help, sal hepatica is recommended by so many physicians. So do the wise thing. Get an economical bottle of sal hepatica at any drugstore as soon as you can. Then whenever anyone in your family feels a cold coming on... Show them this intelligent modern way to help fight that cold with Sal Hepatica.
Stephen and his reconditioned Ipana troubadours have just concluded a fruity rendition of An Apple for the Teacher. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the mighty Alan Art players, whose notices after last week's performance were suppressed in 364 family newspapers throughout the country, take another chance. Tonight, they offer a satire on big business. It's called Dr. Scollop's Quandary. Or, it was the Institute of Private Opinion's last check, and it bounced. Atmosphere, Peter. Hello. Hello. Is this Vanderbilt 122456? This is the Scallop Institute of Private Opinion, madam. We're taking a poll on women's fashions. What is your opinion of the buckle? Oh, you wouldn't. It looks like a sunken knapsack. Thank you. Oh, good morning. Good morning, Miss Graff. Good morning, Dr. Scallop. Public pulse feeler number one is on the job, Miss Graff. Dead. I, I hate to put my muddy shoes up on that clean mahogany desk. How did your shoes get so muddy? I was chasing the man in the street, and he ran up an alley. <laughs> but that's life in the survey game, Miss Graff. I've got to pry into people's private lives to find out what America thinks. Get me a number. What number? Any number. Any. Yes, sir. I always call a preview number to warm up my questioning technique for the day's work. Here's your party. Hello? Scallop Institute of Private Opinion calling. Ah. Would you mind telling me how many lumps you found in your oatmeal at breakfast this morning? I never... How many people read your newspaper over your shoulder as you came downtown in the subway this morning? I never... Do you think a woman's place is in the home? And if so, what kind of a home? I never answer questions. No? No, I ask them. Who are you? Professor Quest. Yeah. I drew a statistical blank, Miss Graff. I'll try another number. This telephone survey business is some profession. Not profession, Miss Graff. It's a calling. And what they're calling it is nobody's business. <laughs> and business is booming, Miss Graff. You know that I have just landed the Puma cigarette account? Their slogan is, don't forget your change, forget your cigarette. <laughs> Puma cigarettes? Yes, Puma cigarettes have just started a new radio program starring that comedian, Bob O'Burl. Now, I'm starting a survey on O'Burl's popularity and a coincidental check on Puma cigarettes. Shall I start calling? As soon as I finish this uh, unfinished business here on the... What's this graph running down the front of my coat? Your fountain pen is leaking. Oh, <laughs> so it is. Remind me to blot myself later. Yes, sir. Did you put through that, uh, that survey on hamburger preference? With or without onions? Yes, I call 500 hamburger stands. And your final results were? 300 wrong numbers and 199 busy signals. That's 499. You did get one number. Yes, I spoke to a man who had just eaten six hamburgers with onions. What did he say? I couldn't write it down. It was a sound. Oh. We should have taken a recording. It was obviously a departed calorie voting its approval. Come in. Hello, Salt. <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> Who am I? You uh, want a survey taken to decide? Oh, no, no, quick kidding. But I'm Bob O'Burl, a radio comedian. Yes, sir. <laughs> you've uh, you've just started on the Puma cigarette program. Well, that's me. Yes, sir. Oh. <laughs> what brings you here, O'Burl? Well, I hear you're taking a poll on my radio popularity. Yeah, that's right, O'Burl. Yes. The Puma cigarette company is spending one hundred thousand dollars to find out if America is really listening to your program. Yeah? Your job depends on the Dr. Scallop survey, O'Burl. Yeah? The Scallop Institute of Private Opinion is at work this very moment. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> How am I doing, Doc? I'll check up for you. 
Now call Vice President in charge of radio, darn it. Thank you. What are the figures on Bobo Burl as of this very minute, Clunk? A total phone calls, 2,000, Chief. Tentative results? 1,998. Always listen to them. And the other two? One party was deaf, the other was a sponsor. Check, Clunk. Check, Chief. Well, how am I doing, Doc? Phenomenally, O'Burl. Yeah? You are compiling the best record my institute has ever polled. Thanks, Doc. Well, I'm off to see a guy who's got the measles. I'll be back in a flash with a rat. <laughs> if America likes that guy, it's time the Indians took over again. The scallop check is foolproof, Miss Graff. The nation is burl-minded. Get me any number at random. Yes, sir. I'll prove the public likes Bob O'Burl. Here you are. Hello? Charlie Greenspan's residence. Madam Marshal Greenspan responding. So much no. <laughs> this is the Scallop Institute of Private Opinion, madam. Do you like Bob O'Burl? Bob O'Burl, small. You're catching the wrong number, brother. Who is this? I'm not telling you who is this, and you ain't telling me who is that. <laughs> this is the Scallop Institute. So nothing is wrong with my scallop. I got the full head hair, thank you. No, 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 madam. What do you think of Bob O'Burl? Again, Mr. Boyle, cutting out the double talk body. But, madam... Getting off the mind, they should go and complain to Fiorella. Now, listen, I... Oh, yeah, 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 my husband is coming. Calling me back in five minutes, darling. Well... Shall I send you a memo confirming it? That's what I get for interfering in Clunk's department. What's this note here on my desk? It's a memo from the wristwatch king. Fuller Pulliver? Yes. <laughs> he wants to know the results of your survey on dunking. Oh, yes. Pulliver is designing a coffee-proof wristwatch for habitual dunkers. He wants a nationwide check on dunkers' habits. Take down these messy statistics, Miss Graff. Yes, sir. Composite conclusion, 62% of all Americans dunk. Check. 18% are neat dunkers. They hold a spoon under their crullers to catch the seepage. 12% are sloppy dunkers. They wring their donuts out after dunking. Get these figures right off to Fuller Pulliver. Yes, sir. <laughs> Hello, soap. Yes, sir. Now, what is it now, O'Burl? I am a busy man. I know, I know, Doc, but how about this popularity poll? It's got me worried. Now, these semi-minute checks are highly irregular, O'Burl, but I will, in this instant, call again. Yes, thank you. And Clark speaking. Still vice president in charge of radio, pending angina pectoris. <laughs> now, before you are stricken, Clunk, what is the flash report on Bob O'Burl? I'm still calling, Doctor. Yes? Last 500 phone calls unanimous. Everyone crazy about Bob O'Burl. <laughs> it's staggering. You are? No, no, it is. Oh. Okay, Clunk. Okay. Gad O'Burl, you're a Vogue. Yes. If these figures continue, you'll pass the fireside chats any minute. <laughs> well, I'm off to visit my drunken uncle. He's an awful stew, and I do mean stew. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he certainly kills him. He certainly kills him, and the sooner the better. Get me a number, Miss Graff. Yes, sir. I have got to check on the public's reaction to the Puma cigarette. Ready, sir. Hello? Yeah. The Scallop Institute calling, madam. Yeah. Have you tried the new Puma cigarette, madam? Yeah. What is your opinion? There's so many syllables in Puma. Take off the M.A. 
Why, you have all this. What happened? This is what the wrong number. I'll find someone who likes Puma cigarettes if I have to start smoking them myself. Who is this? Where is Dr. Scott? Faulkner Q. Pingree. <laughs> the president of Puma Cigarettes. Yes, Faulkner Q. Pingree. We were just talking. I'm going to do the talking now, Scott. Yes, Faulkner Q. What are these phony reports you've been sending me about my radio program? It's the biggest thing on the air. Your comedian is... He's putrid. I've asked all my friends about this Bobo girl. None of them can stand him. Now, you're wrong, Mr. Pingree. Our phone survey gives Bobo Burl a 100% rating. Your survey's in the bunk. Figures don't lie. Now, our contract is canceled. But I can prove that people are listening to O'Burl, Mr. Pingree. Ah. My assistant, Clunk, has been phoning radio owners all day. You've got to show me, Scallop. I can show. I'll show you Clunk's results, Mr. Pingree. Well, make it snappy, Scallop. I've got a conference at Beaton, Bat, and and Scott. Well, one of them is bound to wait for you. <laughs> Clunk's office is down the hall, right through here. Right. This man, Clunk, you know, does nothing but phone unsuspecting people hour upon hour. He is neurotic but infallible. Now, here's his office here. Uh, what do you think of Bob O'Burl, mister? Oh, you're not the bottom? <laughs> okay. Well, Clunk, how goes your rendezvous with Desmo? Oh, hello, Chief. Gosh, this Bob O'Burl poll is a landslide. I just got 50 more favorable reports. Now, there you are, Mr. Pingree. That proves something. Yes, it proves there's something screwy going on around here, Scallop. That adjective, Mr. Pingree, is repulsive. Wait a minute. Look at that telephone wire near the bottom. Gosh, Chief, my phone wire's been cut. Watch this. Another wire's hooked onto it. Yes. Somebody has tapped this line. That second wire leads next door, Scallop. What's in there? That's an empty office. I'll find out who's at the bottom of this survey sabotage. I'm going to look in that next office. Right. Yes, sir. I just adore Bob O'Burl. His jokes are simply precious. Yes, sir. O'Burl! What are you doing here? Why... <laughs> Uh, hello, Mr. Finger. What is this wiretapping skullduggery, uh, O'Burl? I'll tell you what it is, Scallop. No. O'Burl knew that nobody listened to his program. No. He tapped your Scallop survey wires. He sat in here all day, disguising his voice, pretending to be the great American public. Well, he, is he, this uh, true, O'Burl? Well, you, you, yes, Dr. Scallop. You caught me with my rating down. <laughs> that is the last straw, Scallop. I'm through with you. I'm through with polls. I'm through with radio comedians. Fine. Well, this proves something you sponsors should have guessed long ago. What's that? Many a radio comedian who's on top of a pole should really be hung at half mad. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Now, before we preview the highlights of next week's show, we'd like to pass along a very important thought, if you will, Harry. So don't ever forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can never look your best unless you feel your best. That's why we hope you'll always remember the advice of so many physicians. Whenever you feel sluggish and under the weather, or whenever you have a headache resulting from a stomach that's upset because of overindulgence in eating or drinking, sparkling sal hepatica helps give you a faster comeback. You see, if you take something with a laxative action only, you do nothing to counteract excess gastric acidity. But Sal Hepatica does both. It not only brings you speedy yet gentle relief, it also counteracts excess gastric acidity, which chases that sickish feeling fast. So get an inexpensive bottle of Sal Hepatica at your drugstore tomorrow. Remember, the better you feel, the better you look, and the more you're admired. And you feel better faster when you take gentle, quick-acting Sal Hepatica.
that about concludes the business for this evening, ladies and gentlemen. And don't forget, next Wednesday evening, we bring you football prognostication. The score of the Cornell-Princeton game next Saturday will be... Cornell. Three for title. Princeton. Vertical. Your song of the week. A pineapple for the teacher. A pineapple for the teacher. Now, I go to bed. Now, now. That's an apple for the teacher, not pineapple, isn't it? I'm going to reform school, brother. Oh, you would. And our guest star next week will be... That famous singing cowboy, Gene Autry. Yippee! And music. Selection Good Morning is from Babes and Arms. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Fred Allen from his self-titled show in the fall of 1939. It brings us to the end of this commercial-filled edition of the big broadcast tonight for co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog, Mike Kidd, and Kennedy Wright. This is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's through I'm telling you Just how I feel I hope you feel That way too Let's make a date For next Sunday night I'm here to state Twill be my delight to sing again, bring again the things you want me to. I love to spend each Sunday with.